Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys, Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight we are covering episode 62, the top five winner films. This kind of is a companion piece to what we did over last summer, which is the top five summer films. And uh, Frank, one of the, I think this was your idea a while back, is to kind of do this idea of films that take place in the winter. Um why is there so much fucking snow in the 1990s? Because almost all all these movies are from the 1990s. Maybe it was the winter of our discontent. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think there's just a lot of. I think there's a lot of like sadness in the 90s. And <laughs> yes, there is a lot of sadness. In it's the real 90s. easy to place like we, sad because none of these movies are happy. It's our, just, our entire you know, generation was just sad, right? whiny. <laughs> misanthropes <clears throat> yeah so i mean i don't know yeah it's it's really weird though that there's so much um that there's so much like just snow like yeah. and like it's it's because this isn't exhaustive of the movies with snow in them in the 90s no but, um or just in general and that well sure but i mean just in the 90s it feels like there's a lot like when you go back and look at are it, all these movies in the 90s all of them are yeah oh that's weird yeah that wasn't even on purpose yeah i told you this when you were drunk the other week but right um who well, <clears throat> remembers things <laughs> but yeah so uh but you have a big mea culpa with this episode right i do so i have now effed up with the revenant twice um so you're talking about the leo uh DiCaprio leonardo dicaprio movie. um what's his name in Inaradu, uh helmed movie from four years ago i guess 2015 i think is the revenant jesus that long already yeah i feel yeah. like it's it's 15 or 16 yeah it's been a while um should have been on the modern westerns forgot about it um, should have been on this list, forgot about it until yesterday, at which point Chris told me that there's no way he could watch a two and a half hour movie between yesterday and today. So we How many minutes was it? 157 minutes. 157 minutes. That's how I was trying to sell it to you instead of saying you, two Well, and you half. were trying to make me, because I do that, and I think you know I do that. You were trying to make me think it was an hour and 57 minutes. Right, instead of 157 right. minutes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you tried to trick me. I did. I did because um, I really wanted to to put the Revenant on the list. Right, it'll and, make a list someday because it's a fantastic. It, it's one of my favorite movies of the past decade, and yeah. it's just crazy that like I I really think about that movie. I mean, not a lot, but I think about it. Um, and yet, like any time that it comes to being able to be on a list, it just I don't remember it. Yeah. Although I'll be honest, like I think all five of these movies are really strong that we're going to talk about tonight. But I think it could have replaced the fifth movie pretty easily for me. Yeah, I still haven't seen The Revenant yet. Yeah, it's so really good. I, yeah, I, I have no idea. I can't comment on that. But I, I, just, I don't want to. I don't want to give too much away if we're not going to actually talk about it. But sure. it's definitely like one of the better. Um, but just from like your your reaction to it over the years and Orion's reaction to it, I figure it's probably yeah we both loved it. It's actually also one of my favorite like non movie related incidents happened during that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in the um, the pre-show thing that Regal does, um, we we go to Regal Cinemas like for most of our movies. Um, they have the first look they call it, which is like the pre-show, and there was an ad for Sprint Mobile, I think, 
and in the ad that's like something something and use our mobile app and this old man sitting in the row behind us went oh, they have a mobile app <laughs> and it was just like the most perfect like like non-scripted react no it was he went a mobile app it was like the perfect reaction like non-scripted and we both laughed really hard at it and so every once in a while like well like if we're talking about something we're like oh a mobile app so that's a, that's a pretty uh, it's a really good memory and then the movie was fantastic so right yeah that's quite a mark out though for over a mobile app, like. he did yeah um so there's other movies that possibly could have been on this list and a couple that we've talked about that are the reason they didn't make it um the great silence in particular is one that i probably would have put on this list had we not have just done it sure in um spaghetti westerns um there was something else i was thinking about today that i was like i wonder if people question why it's not on the list i can't remember what um i, I despise the hateful eight so if you've listened to our once upon a time in hollywood tarantino retrospective like you know why the hateful eight's not on this list right um i don't know i mean i i I think it's a pretty good list for and really like it was more or less movies that take place in the snow or in like cold and oh the thing is another one that probably would have been on the list had i not you know we've talked about that movie now enough i think even though i love that movie yeah but that's and also that's not really winter that just takes place like in the arctic so right yeah yeah this is yeah all these movies take place in the winter so yeah well technically one doesn't take place in the winter hold on it takes place before the winter right the you're end right. of fall yep. but yep. still yep. whatever you're it's right cold and sure wintery so yes beginning of winter yeah winter winter adjacent <laughs> right and in new england so it's always fucking cold up there so sure whatever. life is winter might as well be winter in new england <laughs> you say life is winter mm. yeah yeah, that's that's exactly the kind of thing that would. But yeah, be, it's like um, that should have been a line in that movie, honestly. Right. If yeah. if you don't, like, if you look outside of this list in the '90s, to your point, we were talking about this last week. You look at stuff like um, Feeling Minnesota takes place in the winter. True. Um, Brown Bunny or no Buffalo '66 is another like indie right. darling yep. movie that took uh-huh. place in the winter. Um, there's just a lot of stuff that was placed like in. There's some other foreign films, like there's, um, I think it's called A Christmas Tale. I don't know what the exact train is. It's a French movie that's about, like, the winter and this family kind of falling apart, so. I'm not going to wax on this very long, but it, don't you think it has to be something generationally? Like, there, there's, there's sure. something, like, with this kind of, ge- that, that Gen X ennui, like, you kind of, it was, like, being was... associated with, you know the cold despair of our you know existences or something like that we were all sitting there watching mtv in the 80s seeing <laughs> like two worlds collide by nxs and like all these videos with like these sad british guys in their peacoats like singing about their mournful lives and it just like carried over into the 90s yeah so yeah. we're all ruined by i don't know we're ruined by Rip a lot up. of things but right. yeah um but yeah i I, I have to believe it's something along those lines, though. I think it's just... I, I think like, it's just, just, it's just a theme. Like I think... I don't know if this is conscious, but I think it's just really easy, cheap symbolism for bleakness and despair and the idea of, like, the ending of a thing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of themes you find in these movies that take place in the winter is that it's, like, 
the end of someone's like a uh, era in someone's life or right. someone's life in general or like it's like a bleak inescapable like thing that they're going into and i think it's sure. just easy to like use that symbolism of like snow swept fields and like snowstorms and darkness and you know what i mean like right. <clears throat> yeah the dirt of like a plowed road or something like it's all just really easy quick like visual symbology that you know directors can play on okay you i'm going to try about that a lot later huh you can complain about that quite yeah a bit right later. i look i am going to try <laughs> i'm going to try to be good about this is this is the most contentious podcast <laughs> possibly that we've done yet just because of like your feelings towards movies that i genuinely love yeah yeah because the, the, those other times we've gotten like I've, I've gotten angry over some of these movies it's like you you like them but you don't like i have a nostalgic you, affection for movies sure. and can understand right. why someone from an objective yeah. point of view would not think yeah there's good. there's two of these movies that you really like right and i to one degree or another i don't like right. them yeah like I, I really don't like them one of them that i genuinely love like i think it's a fantastic movie and yeah right yeah. it's gonna be fun i'm looking forward yeah. to it that's number three it got, little, it, got it got it got got heated it, at the bar last it, night. yeah it was it bordered on ugly for like five seconds right i was just trying to live my life <laughs> kept, kept trying to goad me into no no you were goading me at that point and then you didn't want to hear you know it. what <laughs> That's just your opinion, I guess. Right, yeah. and anyway, so let's... Okay. So number five on your list is 1997 film Affliction, directed by Paul Schrader. stars Nick Nolte, Willem Dafoe, James Coburn, and Sissy Spacek. Has an 88% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes, a 72% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit, the, wow, bit about the movie? Wow, that's a crazy disparity. I'm surprised. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. I mean, I guess I can see why audiences like might be turned off by it. Um, yeah, I can. Yeah. It's the story of um, Wade Whitehouse. Yep. Um, who kind of like a bumbling, middling nobody in this um, New England town. He's part time sheriff, part time handyman, just sort of like a jack of all trades that works for this rich landowner. Um, he's divorced. He has a bad relationship with his daughter. Um, he's the son of an alcoholic who was abused as a child. Basically, he's just this kind of like middling to low intelligent sad sack that just sort of exists and is trying, trying to be a good dad, but doesn't know how to do it because he had no role model to it and <clears throat> trying to be good at his job, but doesn't really have like the ability to stick with anything. So he's not able to do that. Um, a hunting accident occurs where someone dies and he gets it in his head that the death was a murder. And since he's the town policeman, he feels like it's his responsibility to investigate it. So all of a sudden, you know, he tries to start doing police work. Um, the same time he's trying to sue for custody of his daughter, even though she has no interest in like being with him really. And trying to marry his long-term girlfriend who's like a waitress in the town um, diner who also doesn't feel like she is that that's the sissy's basic character doesn't feel like she has much interest in it trying to reconcile and have some relationship with his dad who still is like antagonistic and hates him and is so self-absorbed that he lets 
the his wife, the like Nick Nolte's mother, die, doesn't even realize that she's dead because he refuses to fix the heat in their house. It's just a really bleak, awful movie that like you're kind of watching Nick Nolte fall apart because of bad decisions that he's making in trying to do the right thing and doing it so poorly that he just continuously like moves further away from achieving any of his goals until in the end, you know, he basically, he murders his father, murders um, this young kid that was his best friend that he suspects of committing the murder and the hunting accident and basically like flees. And that's the end of the movie. Um, Portions of the movie are told in a grainy flashback of um, Coburn who plays his father as an abusive tyrant um, when uh, the Nolte character and Willem Dafoe's character were young children. Um, Abusive towards them, abusive towards the mother. Um, Also some other flashback stuff that like is kind of in his, him trying to imagine things happening during like the incident with the the hunting incident where he thinks that the guy got killed. Um, Trying to like sort of piece it together for himself. That, That happens a few times. Um, it's pretty sparsely directed. I mean, um, Schrader's kind of a minimalist when it comes to direction. Like, he's not he's not really showy in his direction, um, which I think sometimes might hurt this movie a little bit because it feels, like, static a lot of times to me. Um, not really a fan of the flashback sequences. Like, I kind of feel like they're, even though I think they're sort of important, I think they could have been done differently and they're jarring when they happen. Because the film stock changes and they're like... I don't particularly like the way they're filmed myself. It it almost looks like... Because it's filmed on film. And then it feels like you're watching these intercut segments of like HD video at the time. Like that's what they look like. They don't look like film anymore. Yeah. Well, that's weird. It also like has this weird feeling of like looking at an old newsreel. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the point. It is, but it does. It's not a good effect for a flashback. The anyway. haze of memory, because there's a right. conversation between um, Nolte and uh, Defoe late in the movie where Defoe is sort of saying, "Like, well, no, I don't remember what you're remembering in the way you remember it," and I think that's the point is trying to say that, like, you know, memory is hazy and like unreliable, especially you know, forty, fifty years, however long it's been since sure. the events happened. Um, and that's really like so. Nick Nolte's performance is fantastic. Coburn's performance, he won an Academy Award for it, is superb, like, just in its menace. And he's just such a terrible character, and he plays it, like, so well. And, yeah. like, if, if you've ever known anyone who was, like, kind of a bully or an alcoholic, like, you... Coburn nails that, like, perfectly. Like, that yeah. kind of, like, half-drunk swagger. With, like, a little bit of pleading if he thinks that'll get his way, but then, like, immediately turning into a bully and a, you know. So this was based off of a book, what's the guy's Russell name? Russell Banks. Russell Banks yeah. book. One of my favorite, one of my favorite writers of, like, the 20th century, hmm. honestly. And so we read this book as part of a short-lived, like, three-month-long book club um, on friend of the podcast Mike Blutzo's website back then and it was what me me you Bletso, sean and i think it was just the four of us that read it probably that actually read it yeah, yeah that actually i mean there were other it. people that were supposed to read it but right we, but didn't so yeah. but um so we read this and there's a 
there's a scene in it in the book, not in the movie, uh, where he, uh, what? Wow, I'm forgetting his name now. Glenn, the father, uh-huh. challenges young uh, Wade to arm wrestle, right? And beats him like in arm wrestling, even though Wade's a child, and like just like continue and they would do it to like prove his dominance, which I've talked about here on the podcast before is an exact thing my father used to do to me. Um, so that has always like I've always kind of pictured my father like as I read that book because mm-hmm. of like some of the similarities, like the, that one specifically, yeah. but, uh, some other similarities. Um, so it's really weird because I haven't watched this movie since it, probably around that time. So it was like oh three maybe or something like that that I watched it. I guess this movie, but um, I have it's really weird like to have like two different images like that in my head. That's but Coburn, yeah, Coburn's amazing in this. Yeah. like with um, uh, but I'll say this: I think Nolte. I actually think Nolte's like gives a gives a better performance overall than Coburn as much as accolades as Coburn it, gets I think it's like maybe one of the best Nolte performances I've ever seen it's interesting and especially in relation to the next movie we're going to talk about because Nolte Nolte's playing a character that's not a good man but is also not a bad man right he's not an evil man and yeah. Nolte has like this nuance in his performance of capturing like confusion and wrongheadedness with like the desire to do right but the inability to hold himself accountable to his own actions yeah and sometimes in the span of like three minutes of a scene like you can see him move between conflicting emotions and thoughts and it's like i've always thought that it's probably really difficult for someone who's an educated you know experienced actor to um to play someone who's kind of a dullard you know like i think that's probably one of the more difficult things and nolte really captures like especially because you know his his older brother is this educated college professor that's the defoe character is a college professor at boston university um his girlfriend while not being like on this like sissy spacex character not overly smart, but is really good-hearted and, like, has a lot of common sense. And Nick Nolte has no common sense. No. And Wade is just such a complex character because he's trying to do the right thing. And he's never trying to be his father, but has so many, like, either genetic or whatever, like, learned yeah. behavior. Does so many things that, like, kind of emulate what his father is to the point where... One of the most like horrifying and heartbreaking scenes in the movie is when he realizes that Margie, the sissy SpaceX character, is leaving him and he's trying to stop her and he has his hands on her and his daughter attacks him and knocks him down and he has to throw his daughter off and mm-hmm. <clears throat> like the father, the Coburn um, character, Glenn, is watching it and is like, yeah, like now you're the man that I am. Like now I right. now I can respect you and it's like like all these things that he's done to try and do the right thing and he can't escape like who he is yeah so my a couple complaints i have about this movie because i really do like as much as you can enjoy i i think it's a great film i think it was one of the best films of of that year which is saying a lot because a lot came out that year but two of my complaints are that 
I think that it relies too much on Banks Banks's prose to carry just like like the lyricism of his prose and the dialogue. And I think that's what makes most of the movie enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Less Schrader's direction and more just like the way that the actors like can use the dialogue. Agreed. I also think that it's really a cop out to not you always talk about how you could trim 15 or 20 minutes off a movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe you need to trim 15 or 20 minutes out of this movie and add it to the end and actually show him because it just talks about him killing Jack, his like his best friend. And that's like and then fleeing into Canada or whatever. Right. And it does it in this like weird, like four minute monologue by Defoe, who's narrating the entire time. And I'm not yeah. really a big fan of that either. Yeah. Like the Defoe the, narration. The narration's weird considering you don't really get to like know him that much. And also because it just comes out of nowhere sometimes. Like it's not continuous narration. It's like. It's the word I'm thinking of. Port- portentous. Like, or, yeah. Uh, like, it, that, that, that's all it feels like. It feels like it's that narration's boiled down to just that. It's just so willem defoe can sit that character can say and then you know bad things were going right. to happen and it's like yeah it's I'm just, just kind of lame of like it would be like if apocalypse now ended when he got off the boat at kurtz's camp and it was just like right well then he went in and killed captain kurtz and a lot of things happened and right maybe someday you'll find his corpse on the mekong delta you know what i mean yeah, like yeah like show that stuff, you know, because you've already like you've built these characters. Jim True Frost gives a good performance as the Jack who's like this faded like former baseball star who got signed by the Red Sox but then like got hurt and is now just like a handyman like basically he's weighed like 20 years before right. You know, like now like he's going to become Wade someday and you know, sort of dumb, you know, drinks and like smokes weed and like show that you know show yeah. him like leaving the town and trying to like get in the can like yeah. show those things yeah the, 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 the biggest weakness of this movie is the last 15 minutes yes well that's the shame of it too because the scene where maybe 10 minutes where yeah i would say 10 the scene where coburn hits nolte over the hits wade over the back of the head with the bottle yeah and then wade gets up with the gun and tries to shoot him and then just beats him with it. And mm-hmm. then, or no, I'm sorry, he hits him with the gun and he falls down and then he's going to shoot him, but the gun doesn't, anyway. Like, that whole thing is great. And Nolte, like, bending down to, like, sort of try and, like, still, like, see if his dad is alive, but then kind of, like, laying out the Viking funeral for him. That's that's where, it's that turn of the Viking funeral is where I just kind of, like, okay, I'm done. But like, then nothing happens after right. that. He just goes yeah. and sits down and, like, drinks out of the bottle and like everything's burning behind him and it's 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 probably the best visual in the movie honestly is like yeah. nolte just kind of like wade whitehouse sitting there basically like truly becoming his father because he just used violence to yeah. solve a problem and like out the flames but then it just i don't know it's i don't know it's it's it's, it's, it's a real cop-out yeah to have it end that way um and Again, like, I think Schrader is a fine director. Like, he's done some good movies, but I don't know that... I think your diagnosis is exactly right. Pedestrian directing, largely. Ending that's kind of just, yeah. Like, yeah. Just not all it should, should be. Really, what holds it back from being, like, probably the number one movie on this list, if it ends better, I think, mm-hmm. is just, like, it's, it's so unfulfilling to have 
Willem Dafoe's like mealy mouth like narration yeah. like carry you to the end and not actually well, see. Well, that's that character. I seem to remember having a larger piece to play in the book than he does here. Um, like I didn't, I didn't really watching this movie again. It's like I didn't really get the point of the character, honestly. Like he's just, he's there just to be the narrator. Yeah, yeah. and an unreliable narrator. But I, but, I, too. but I, but I think that I'm pretty sure in the book. He narrates the book, correct? I don't as well, and look, it's like I think that he had more of a role to play in some of that. But to me, Affliction is one of like Banks's lesser novels. Like yeah. it's, he's got at least like six or seven books that I like. Uh-huh. So I don't remember Affliction quite as well. Yeah, even though we did read it, and like I, I remember this and bits of dialogue more than I remember the overall flow of that book. Um, how do you think the winter elements? like help or add or or don't maybe like to this movie it's what we said you know what we talked about in the intro like it's it's the bleakness it's the the emptiness it's the idea of like he always like everyone else is always bundled up and dressed appropriately and he's always kind of disheveled with like a t-shirt like hanging out and like he's not ever like dressed he looks like a slob all you know for being the town cop and you know, and it, it it starts in Halloween, like that's the beginning of the, you know, and I, as I recall, like his daughter in the book is much more, like the way they write her dialogue, she's much more scathing towards him. Like you can tell that they they soften her a little bit here where like you feel like there was maybe a one point affection for, between them. Whereas in the book, it's like she just hates her dad. Like right. she has no... She holds him in no esteem whatsoever. And I think that, like, that's another thing, too, is just, like, seeing her, like, layered against him and bundled up against him. And, like, you know, she has a mask on one time when she's talking to him. And then it's always, like, the coldness of, like, her is just, like, kind of reflected in the coldness of the environment. and, Mm. And it also, like, it just feels like a movie that needs to take place in winter. Like, you know, that's it because it leads to the mother's death and... There is some really, like, I mean, just, I I think it's more of a matter of just by default, but there's some really beautiful imagery, like, especially of, like, like, the hills and the trees behind people when they're talking, and I don't know. But a lot of it takes place in the winter just because it's the catalyst for a lot of things. You know, it's deer hunting season, so it needs to be, like, it's that time of year, and, you know, he's, like, the snowplow driver, so that's, like, his job, and that's why... Um, that's part of like the relation between him and Jack, the Jim True Frost. Oh, it's funny. Did you notice that they call him Jim True? Like that's what he was acting under. It's not Jim True Frost. I did notice that. Yeah. Um, it actually took me about ten minutes to realize who it was because I was like, man, I know this dude from. Somewhere. Uh, yeah. And then like, I, I he, yeah. he made this face <laughs> as a reaction to something. I was like, holy shit, it's Prez Belusky. You're right. Yeah. Um, Jim True Frost yeah. played um Prez, one of the characters on a, um, The Wire. Yeah. A bumbling, bumbling cop turned eventual super successful like high school teacher. Right, yeah. Um, but anyway, it's it's a really good movie. Um, one of the better movies of like the late nineties. Um, I think Nolte's best performance. Um, fantastic performance from Coburn and Spacek. Um, just really worth watching and like it. I think it's probably difficult to watch, like especially if you've been through like like an abusive relationship with like a parent that came through alcoholism. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, like, you would be able to speak to that more, but I think it's, like, definitely, like, a powerful film and definitely, like, worth worth checking out. Yeah. 
No, I mean, I think if it's still like fresh to you, like it could possibly be difficult. Like, I mean, I'm kind of, I've seen enough movies about that kind of stuff that it's like, and read enough books that I'm kind of numb to like. Yeah, that's the, the other whole thing, thing too but... that I hate about those flashback sequences is they feel like very lifetime movie of the week. That, that's like the way yeah, that, yeah, it's all like Dutch that's angles. And agreed. He almost feels like a cackling like supervillain, like. Ho, 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 boy, which, get up and blah, blah, which, blah. Which, again, I think is to your, you said earlier, and I think it's the correct point about Rolf bringing up later in the in the movie where it's like, I don't remember things that way exactly. Right. I, I think the idea is those are Wade's memories and Wade has made him a supervillain, like this cackling, like, you know, stereotype to some degree in those memories. Right. When I'm sure he was a dick, but it's not necessarily, I think Coburn's kind of playing it that way because it's just the Glenn of his memory. But, you know, but when, you watch, when you watch Coburn act in like, the modern i don't know like i think it might even be worse i think he might be softening the image somewhat mm. because he still like wants to take care of his dad and still wants to be like earn his father's respect like throughout that entire movie like that's him trying yeah. to take him into his house and care for him and instead of just letting his dad like die which is what he probably should have done right yeah so but anyway great movie and definitely worth watching yeah really good performances um <clears throat> yeah so, number four on your list is 1998's A Simple Plan, directed by Sam Raimi, starring Bill Paxton, Billy Bob Thornton, Bridget Fonda, Brent Briscoe, and Gary Cole. has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 81% from audiences. Want to tell us a little about the movie and what you like about it? Um, so, this is another movie that's based on a novel. Um, can't remember who wrote the novel, Simple Plan. Um two brothers uh who live in a small town also in new england perhaps i don't remember where this takes place um yeah it's interesting i i i, I actually don't remember i'll look it up it's it's in farming country somewhere because that's the, one of the crux of the movie is that they were a farmer i feel like it's in like the midwest from trying to remember the movie um anyway two brothers bill paxton is a college educated accountant who works for a feed company with a pregnant wife played by Bridget Fonda. Um, Billy Bob Thornton is his um, older brother who's kind of a dullard, unemployed, who spends a lot of his time just like drinking and living on the, you know, living off welfare and hanging out with his um, best friend who's also a dullard and a drunk. Um, the three of them are out driving one day um, because they had to go leave flowers at uh their father's gravesite. Um, Thornton almost hits a fox, causes him to run into a tree. Um, the three of them go into the woods and find a down plane where they find four and a half million dollars in a duffel bag. So despite Paxton's like initial objections to keeping the money, they decide to keep it. Um, and it all immediately begins to unravel from there, uh, leading to several murders basically trying to like sort of cover their tracks and keep the money. Um, the murder of like a farmer that happens to like catch them when they're trying to take a portion of the money back to pretend like they had never found it. And then the murder of, um, is it Lou? Is that his name? What's, what's the name of the friend? Lou, the, 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 the third friend. Yeah. It's Lou. Yeah. So the murder of Lou and then the murder of Lou's wife. And then ultimately, um, 
this one of the original it it, it was a a ransom basically payment that was in the plane um and one of the ransomers comes to try and claim it like under the guise of an fbi agent so then the murder of the the town sheriff and then one of the worst scenes in the movie where billy bob thornton is basically just like i need you to kill me because i can't live with this anymore and if you don't you know basically like making bill paxton murder him in the snow and ultimately having to destroy the money anyway because he finds out that they had taken the serial numbers off of five thousand of the bills so there's no way they could ever realize like know which ones were marked and which ones weren't so he has to burn all of it so at the end no better off than he was at the beginning and actually like so much worse because now so one of the more interesting parts of the movie so I, i i really enjoy this movie um, I actually saw this movie in the theater when it came out. Um, this is one of like four movies on this list that I saw like in theater. Actually, everything but the second movie on this list I actually saw like mm. in a movie theater when it came out. Um, and it was snowing like it was w- winter at the time, so it was like really cool like coming out, and it was like snowing like when we came out of the theater. Um, Billy Bob Thornton is far and away like the best part of this movie. Um, one of the more it's almost like his Sling Blade performance, but with thought and nuance behind it instead of just being like a caricature. Like it's, well, it's a real, uh, I a think fully it's, realized yes. human being it's with real thoughts person. and emotions. And yeah. and it's it's sort of like why I brought this up with Nick Nolte um, in Affliction mm-hmm. is that like, here's a man who is like a very intelligent and well-educated person, like the actor Billy Bob Thornton, playing somebody that, a very low intellect and very low sense, I guess. I don't know. Like really like makes bad decisions and lives a very like dirty, small life because he's just not able to do anything really. Like he doesn't, he lacks the ability, but still has like feelings and emotion and heart. And I don't know. It's just, it's, it's an amazing performance. Um, one of like, I think maybe my favorite Billy Bob Thornton, Thornton performance ever. Um, you know, cause he's, he's sad and he's, he like just wants to care for other people. And the only person in his life that he really cares for aside from his dog is like his best friend. And his brother basically talks him into betraying the best friend so they can keep this money. And it leads yeah. to the best friend's murder. And, there's some yeah, there's some heartbreaking stuff with that character in this movie. It's really hard to watch at times. It is like particularly as torn loyalties between the like during the whole like night where they're hanging out that leads to the lose murder. Right. The the torn loyalty between his brother and his best friend and resenting his brother but help, wanting to help his brother and that whole thing's really difficult to watch. And then this damn scene where uh he wants to like maybe like try to find a girl. He tells his brother. Oh and his, right, and then his brother the thought car. he was dating a girl. And yes, yeah, so they he her finds... friends just better a hundred dollars that she wouldn't date him for a month. And Awful. but we we walked around and one time we held hands and we talked about cool stuff and yeah maybe someday I could find a woman. But like knowing like him, he says it and like you can tell that he knows that like it's never gonna happen. Right, it's incredibly difficult to yes. watch. Yes. Um, to kind of explain that scene, the scene where they're hanging out that leads to the murder, um, Bill Paxton is convinced 
the Billy Bob Thornton character, Jacob, um, that they need to record Lou confessing to the murder so they can keep it in their like back pocket in case he tries to betray them. So they can be like, no, listen, like he confessed to murdering, um, murdering this farmer that like the uh, Billy Bob Thornton, just like hitting him with like a tire iron or whatever. Mm -hmm. Cause he panics cause he doesn't know what else to do. Mm. Um, it's, it, it's an amazing scene. Cause like when you first see the movie, you think that Thornton is kind of like, even though, the Jacob character has told his brother, like, yeah, like I'll go along with your plan that he's betraying him. Cause he's standing there right. and like just all of these like true feelings coming out. Like, mm-hmm. this is what I think of you. And this is mm-hmm. how you look at me and my friends. And you are never going to like actually respect me. And you're just using me right now. And I know that you are, but still because that bond of family is so strong that he's still like, it's just using that to get Lou to go along with like right. his plan. And it's like, it's, it shows that he has because the thing is, what what's um, Paxton's character's name? I, I can't Hank? remember. Oh, right, Hank. Yeah, Hank Mitchell. Yeah. Even though Hank is college educated, Hank's also not very smart, and well, he also has no sense. He he does not. And just to make that point even clearer, the whole plan to get Lou on tape is not Hank's plan. Pretty much all right, of it all, is but, always his wife's plans. So that's that's the other thing that I love about this movie yeah. is the. I mean, basically, Bridget Fonda is Lady Macbeth yeah. throughout the entire movie. And Paxton's Hank character is just like a really stupid Macbeth. But she, even though she's initially, like, as a theoretical experiment, completely opposed to, like, keeping the money, once she sees the money, she's fully invested. And every terrible thing that happens comes from her convincing him to change whatever element of the plan they had. And it's really, um, Brid- Bridget Fonda is one of my favorite actresses of the nineties. Um, like I, I, I love Bridget Fonda in the nineties. I don't know that she's given enough here. Like, I think that her role is good, but it's so brief because she's maybe on screen for, I don't know, 30 minutes of this movie total. Oh, well, I think that, and I think it's a very one dimensional role. Because it is, like you she's said, just, she's just that character. Aside that from her being like character. this loving wife in the beginning, she just kind of turns into a shrew that you can tell looks down on other people right. and feels like she's better than everyone else. And so really an, an, an underutilized performance, but it's like brilliant in the sense of her, like manipulating him because he really like the Hank character is not a bright man. He just happens to have a degree and it like has allowed him to get this middling job at this local company, which had they never found the money, they could have lived and they would have been fine for the rest of their life. But like, as soon as she sees the ability to get out, She's worse than everyone else. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Like all Lou wants to do is like not have his car repossessed and help right. his wife. Yeah. And all Billy Bob Thornton wants to do is go live in the house he grew up in because that was the only time he was happy was like living on the farm that had to get, you know, second mortgage taken out against it to pay for Hank to go to college, which eventually led to his father, ki- their father killing himself basically and like their mother yeah. dying and just all this like horrible tragedy that Hank is so self-absorbed that he doesn't even like realize is happening that you can tell that the Jacob character with Billy Bob has carried with him like his whole life. And it's, mm-hmm. it's so like the heist element of this movie is fine. And it's almost secondary to just like the relationship between those two and the character study of like this man who's not very bright and not successful and has no prospects. And is just trying to live a life and like, 
<clears throat> I don't know, like just be good natured and do good things and yeah i mean the plot elements of this movie it's 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 what treasure of sierra madre in the snow it's the 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 strength of this movie are those relationships right like that's the true strength of this movie not the crime caper element of the entire thing yes well so there's several scenes that are really just kind of like heartbreaking Mm -hmm. because you do even though like you're really annoyed with jacob as a character because he makes like such bad decisions you're kind of like you're never sympathetic towards hank i don't think but you really like feel a lot of sympathy towards there are times where it's like i feel i i guess if you allow yourself to be like he, it's, it's he's in circumstances that he, obviously he's in above his head right but he's also these circumstances end up happening to him at times like the night with lou like he did not think that night was going to turn out like it did and i do think that there is like some element of like maybe not sympathy in the sense of like i feel bad for him but it's like man this guy certainly was not trying to make this happen right um but then he ends up like calling the cops and like pretending and like that like figures it out quickly enough of how they can try to cover it up that it's like then you're back to thinking sure he's a piece of shit that that he can think of like how to cover this up so quickly so it's a really weird character i think in terms of like whether you're supposed to have sympathy and whether you do well also speaking of over his head i mean bill paxton is not bill, well, right. like a great actor so right. it's, he's just kind of like right. you're just kind of watching bill paxton be bill paxton sure, sure. in this movie yeah um I don't like yeah there's the, I, I won't say anything more and i'll just let you say that yeah because i don't want to speak too ill of the dead like that but um yeah like the the one scene that really like always like kind of makes my heart hurt in this movie i've seen this movie i guess this is the third time is when their baby is born so yeah. she's in the maternity ward and jacob comes to visit him and has a gift with him and the gift is like his teddy bear from when he was a kid and he's like, hey, guess who's here? And, like, they don't even care. And she doesn't yeah. want him around. Oh, it's and, awful. It's awful. And she's oh. like, what's this used, like, this used thing? And it's, I don't know. It's it's so, like. And, and Hank has to explain to her, like. Right. Here's this guy with no money, no right. job, who's just trying to do this nice thing. Yeah. To show that he cares about their kid. And it's just, she's so dismissive. It's, she's, she's truly, like, the villain of the movie. And yeah. just has like the smallest like role in it in a lot of ways but mm-hmm. but it's 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 really well done yeah. um it's a solid movie it's worth checking out i think so uh, the winter aspect of it is obviously it takes place in the snow yeah in um, minnesota minnesota okay they only find um the plane because uh lou throws a snowball at um hank because he's pissed off at him and causes like snow to fall off of this plane and a lot of um again it's it's very very workmanlike direction in this movie like it's yeah. not anything like and Raimi was very limited uh, in some ways uh, because of the he took it over from Robert Town who yeah. was supposed to direct it and ended up inheriting the cast <clears throat> um which some of that worked out for him I think and some of it you know could have been better but right. he um but it was also uh, locked into the locations that had been scouted when town was going to direct 
and I think that some of those locations were a little problematic. So, for instance, Lou's house, I didn't think was filmed and like. I thought the living room stuff was filmed well. I thought that the stuff in the doorway and mm. the foyer of the house and kitchen was a little clunky in the way that it looked in the in the direction. But I think it was the location itself that that I mean, caused that to happen. Maybe you can say that, but like, like it doesn't feel like a like a Raimi movie. Like there's only a couple of things that are kind of like Raimi like tropes or whatever that happen in this movie, and really it's just a couple of small. Oh yeah, I I'm not saying like when, it when feels like that at all. At, so there's crows that are inside the um, yeah. wreckage of the ship, like pecking at the eyes of the corpse of the pilot, and they fly at um, Bill Paxton's face when he goes in to investigate, and it's like several quick cuts back and forth between the crow and him, yeah. and the crow and him, and that's that's very Raimi esque, but but a lot of it, no, a lot of it's very. Uh much simpler than what he yeah he doesn't for. do any of his rack focus stuff no, he no. doesn't do any of his like um first person perspective like no it's very classically filmed it's, yeah. it's, it's not his normal shtick uh which i guess like but i just think it's very just kind of like blah at times yeah. or just uninteresting and I, I just think that might be in part because it's not his normal thing but i also think that he was limited probably because of the, some of those locations that's probably true i don't know i mean it's not not a bad movie like it's you're not gonna be no you're not gonna know it's competent it's competent i guess like that's that's the yeah. thing like it's not gonna ever stand out to right you, but it's also not gonna distract or detract from the movie yeah. and the performances especially um really just billy bob thornton's performance I think that I don't know. I, I've seen him in little stuff. I I, I think uh, what's his name Brent Briscoe that plays Lou, Lou is right, he's really, really good. good. Um, but he, he's a small character actor, but he's good in it. Yeah, it's just it's it's again, it must be so difficult to play somebody that like has these dawning realizations of something that you as the viewer like know, and you have to like watch someone play someone of like low intellect. Like yeah. I don't know. It's it's. Yeah, and, and and what's the last thing I'll say, I guess, is that Billy Bob Thornton performance is, this is a man who has a natural charisma to him and a natural charm to him in a lot of different roles. Even in Sling Blade, there's a charm to that character mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Right. But it's like you think about like how like charming he can be um, in, in a lot of different roles that he plays uh, throughout his career. And to be able to... Uh, you know, to, to press, to put that away and be able to just go into this character and with no charm, right? with, you know, no do wit. You, do you I, feel like he's has some prosthetic stuff done too, like on his face? Like maybe some kind of like makeup? Because like when he, when he moves like his eyes and his nose, like there's a lot of extra wrinkling that happens like around. And I was wondering if there was like some kind of like trying to picture it. Like I didn't really think of it at the time at all. Like it makes his brow. Like I know that Billy Bob Thornton's got a very like pronounced like forehead mm -hmm. and eyes, and like like that's one of his things. Is, like, yeah. But it feels like more pronounced, and maybe it's just the way yeah. they hang his hair down. Maybe and, like, put yeah. The hat on him. I I do think uh, his eyebrows themselves look puff like bigger. Like they're like obviously yeah. like larger than right. it normally is, and maybe that added to it. I don't know. I think he's also like jutting out his um like his upper palate, like he's pushing his teeth out further. Yeah. To I kind of give himself sort of yeah. like a like I don't know, like a hangdog look or I don't mm -hmm. know how to say it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's an amazing performance. And like it's it it's it it's a good movie. Right. Um yeah. yeah. I mean 
better it, it 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 jumps again if if affliction had ended like well it would be much higher on the list but because it's a complete movie with a firm ending like to me it's it's the better of the two so that's why it's a little higher second favorite movie on this list of yours like here right me. <clears throat> okay. oh, i'm so excited to talk about number three it's kind of it's good it's good that we usually take a break between three and two um right in this case okay so number three on your list is the ice storm also 1997 it's directed by ang lee it stars kevin klein sigourney weaver joan allen christina ricci elijah wood toby mcguire uh it has a, an 85 percent from critics and an 82 percent from audiences uh on rotten tomatoes so you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it um takes place in the early 70s um again i think and it's in connecticut right is where they live i believe so yeah connecticut right because that's how the train conductor says it yep you're right um looks at kind of the disintegration of two families and their relationships um both internal and with each other um kind of the i don't know what you call like the dis disaffection disaffectation i don't know of like children growing up in the 70s and experiencing like the um watergate scandal and the nixon um it's right before nixon resigns i guess like that's it's taking place during the the hearings because nixon's like kind of yeah so it's not long before he resigns right like defending himself um yeah yeah, it it is the watergate hearings that she's watching every night christina ricci also dealing with like um the onset of puberty and like budding sexuality um and then kind of like the death of sexuality of like certain characters as they get older and the boredom of like their marriages um very much like a small movie that's just about the like the complexities of relationships between adults and just how they kind of like fall apart and ebb and flow and set against the backdrop of um thanksgiving break so all the kids are off um elijah wood i i I never can separate elijah wood and toby mcguire especially when they have the misfortune of being in the same movie so elijah wood is the younger son of the sigourney weaver character the oldest oldest son of the sigourney weaver character and toby Toby mcguire is the oldest son of kevin klein and joan allen Right. Who's coming home for the holiday. Christina from, Ricci's brother, yes. Yes, from the boarding school that he's at. Right. Um, in New York. Where he hangs out with, uh, what's his name? Um, the kid from Freaks and Geeks and yeah, some other stuff. Right. Numbers and yeah. um, we uh, cast him in a Sam's, lot of stuff. Sam's older brother on Freaks and Geeks. Right, Neil. yeah. Uh, Crumb Holtz. Yeah, Playing the same character, kind of like the smarmy. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um. Anyway. And Katie Holmes. Um, so set against that backdrop of like that time. And it's also an impending, um, ice storm, like freezing rain event that comes. And that happens on the night where like, I guess like most of the action of the movie happens, like the tragedy of the movie, um, which is the death of the, uh, Tobey Maguire character. Um, no, the Elijah Wood character. See, I can't tell them apart. And we just talked about it. So the Elijah Wood character, Elijah Wood character, yeah. Um, there's a lot of, like, small, like, I don't know, 
like small scenes that kind of show just their inability to like cope with the modern world, I suppose. And it's sort of is maybe like Ang Lee's like condemnation of the seventies in a way, or just like condemnation of that whole generation of people who are unable to make connections or deal with things like even through therapy. Cause that's one of the first things you find out is that Kevin Klein and Joan Allen have removed themselves from therapy because Kevin Klein doesn't see that it works. But he doesn't see that it works because he's fucking Sigourney Weaver, which is why he doesn't feel that they need couples therapy because he, in his mind, is already like in another relationship. Kevin Klein's character is like a terrible character in this movie. And towards the end, when they want you to kind of feel sympathy towards him, like it's really tough to feel any kind of sympathy for him because he's just a self-absorbed like asshole, pretty much. Yeah. My problem is that they want you to feel sympathy for him. More so than whether you can feel sympathy for him. So, one of the things that I love about this movie um, is just, I think it's Ang Lee's best direction that he does. And especially, like, the way that he captures, just, like, this, the way he captures, like, nature, basically, more or less. Um, because for the majority of the movie, because it takes place, you know, the couple days before Thanksgiving and then the day after Thanksgiving, I suppose. <clears throat> um, so a lot of it is fall, you know, where it's like the leaves in like in a, like an abandoned pool and just like the colors and like the clothes that people are wearing. And it does a good job of giving you the reason that it's on a winter list and it would be on a list anyway. Cause like I would have found a way at some point to talk about the ice storm. Um, he does a really great job of like building the feeling of like increasing cold, like that the weather is getting colder and <laughs> like symbolically that like all the relationships are getting colder and that things are like kind of like falling apart and freezing and doesn't ever give you like the chance to like get to the thaw. Like it just, it ends like in the aftermath of like this frozen kind of wasteland where you know, one family is destroyed and the other family is like irrevo irrevoc irrevocably altered and that just, that's it. Like, it doesn't like give you any kind of release from that. Unless you consider Kevin Klein like breaking down in the car, like the release, but I don't, I don't consider that the case. I think that's what the movie thinks it is. Well, you know, that's its opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, I love the way this movie shot. Like it's right. I and the, you and you were you were you were saying last night that you 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 were you were really going on about how well you think this movie is shot. It is. It's beautiful, and I think it's because like I think the exteriors are extremely extremely well done. I think the cinematography is really strong. I think like like the and I also said last night I think the editing is extremely good. Like the way that like that movie is edited around the pool scene, like especially right. not only when they meet at the pool for the first time and they kiss and all that kind of stuff when you first see the pool, but later when he's when he's on the diving board and, like and you could and like the way that you right he's testing the yeah the the diving board when it's like iced over and stuff like that and he's slipping. The editing of that movie is really well done. Right. Um. I just don't see where, when you talk about the directing, it's like a lot of the interior scenes, I don't see what's so necessarily special about I think it them. just, like, 
That's all I was saying last. I night. think it just captures. And then you got really angry when you said that I when I said I didn't think the ex- interior scenes were anything special. Like that's when you started getting angry. I think it captures the feeling of the 1970s and then how I remember that set direction. Yeah, I agree. Right, yeah, yeah. but right. like. I agree the sets are well done, except for you. Except, like, you were so, bitching right. last night. That's my biggest complaint about the movie, and uh-huh. this is... You're telling this complaint, yeah. Right, this is a ridiculous complaint. So, early in the movie... Um, fuck, I'm going to do it again. Early in the movie, Elijah Wood and his younger brother, whose name... I, I know that actor, I can't remember his name, are in their room, and their toys are on the floor, and the younger brother is playing with the toys... And there's a 1982 G.I. Joe APC sitting on the floor that would not have existed in 1970. And it made me so annoyed, like, watching this movie. Like, how do you how, how do you not, like, have continuity people? They're like, hey, <laughs> like, this shit would not have been, like, a toy that he would have had. Because they have, like, all these... I also don't think that he would have had some of those G.I. Joes either. Like, he's got, like, the... Kung, well, maybe. I don't know. Because those were in the 50s and 60s. Anyway unbelievable like it's just it's 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 really like a bad oversight but yeah right that just annoyed me right i don't know other than that like so here's the the set the set direction is really good i think that it's i think it's a really interesting i think it's a really well done examination of something that's been overdone in the past 25 years Mm -hmm. and maybe in the past 30 or 40 years which is the idea of, well, you know, whatever, like Kramer versus Kramer. It's like people can't stay married. Like, you know, why do you cheat on someone? Like, why do you lose interest in being physical with someone? Like, why why is everyone so sad? Yes. Basically. That's more of to the point. Like, yes, adultery often pops up in these fucking white people movies. Because it's part of the sadness, right? See, there's it's part of thing. the it's part of the, ex, the this existential sadness that comes from being privileged and white. So both but, families are very privileged, you know. I mean, they can afford to send their son to a like a prestigious boarding school in New York City. Um, it's established that um, Sigourney Weaver's husband is the inventor of foam peanuts basically is like what they try right. and say right? right yeah um which is good i mean which is it's good that's good i'll i'll, I'll there's a, there's things in this movie at times that's good and the I, fact that it's like that's what this dude so just shows how fucking dolly really is like is right. that's what he's invented like that's the thing that he's gonna right, they're yeah. gonna become uh-huh. millionaires. so let me turn her let me let me turn this around a little bit on you uh-huh. Let's say that it's not Kevin Klein in this role. That okay. it's somebody. Let's say that that role is slightly different because I think, I think the thing that makes this movie difficult to watch is him. I think he's the worst element of the movie, and not because of his performance, but because the character is so. He's not even despicable. He's just he's so this milquetoast. He's weak, right? He's just like, weak. He's a weak person. Sort of like he's he's so self-absorbed. Yes, that he can't see not only what he has in his family, but what he has in his affair, 
and he can't see anyone else like around him like he can only see like himself. he makes the decision to have this affair and he can't even be fucking confident in that like it's like <laughs> it's like if you're going to go that far to like you know to sit there and like whatever it's like you know to, to, to take that step and look i'm not even going to make a judgment on that necessarily it's like you know like pe- my general philosophy of life is we're all just broken people trying to figure things out and get by so it's i'm not judging even the character for the like necessarily like for the things that they do like that's not what this is about it's about the idea that you're supposed to like you know it's like i get it this is my like this was my childhood in certain ways like i i've seen all this it's like or you've seen it in like friends parents right happen it's like this is all of our fucking childhoods like this like the, what i call these white people movies it's not him so much like i like i i think you're misunderstanding like it would be better you're yeah, yes you're correct it would be better if that character were better right agreed but it doesn't go to the main point of what I hold against these movies, which is, okay, you're going to show me the things that I already know. And look, that happens sometimes, and I'm fine with that. But for it to just be like this banal, everyday stuff of life, and then try to get me to sympathize and feel sad, it's like I'm trying to feel... I'm trying not to feel sad for myself. So, I don't want to spend time feeling sad for these white so this, fucks. Like, this was our argument last night, and this was what I was trying to like kind of counter-argue last night while we were like drinking. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it wants you to feel sympathetic. I don't think the end result of this movie is for you to feel sympathy towards any character in this movie. No, I okay. think this movie is a condemnation of Kevin Klein and what he represents. No, I don't which is that. I don't agree with that at all just that type of like person that type of man that because no one respects him in that movie i i I agree but i think that you're i i think that like it's supposed to be his like the the breakthrough moment where he realizes and you're supposed to feel like a certain way for i don't think he's realized anything all i think it is in that moment so just just to like 100 percent clarifies in case you've never seen the movie what we're talking about um Elijah Wood's character gets electrocuted on the night of the ice storm because he's leaning against a metal guardrail and a um, fallen power line hits it. Um, Kevin Klein is coming back from a, f- a key party that him and his wife attended where his wife had clumsy sex with... Anyway, that's there's a lot there. But anyway, so Kevin Klein finds the body of Elijah Wood in the road and brings him back and carries him onto the porch of the um sigourney weaver's house basically her husband who found out that this man has been cuckolding him comes out on the porch and kevin klein is trying to like clumsily offer sympathy and condolence and help and this man who just found out that kevin klein's been fucking his wife the night before like found out the night before that this has been happening just wants to take his son and mourn his son like he just wants to be alone with his son and so kevin klein still has no ability to see through his own like narrow focus of the world to realize why he's inappropriate in that moment and why the way he's approaching everything just doesn't work 
So they have to take their son back to catch the train. So they're doing this completely in the wake of this horrific incident where probably two marriages have been ruined and one family has been like destroyed. They have to take their son back to get on the train and they're sitting in the car at the train station and he breaks down in tears. And that's the end of the movie basically. Uh And I think that the whole thing is that he's learned nothing. He's not crying because I actually think there's like subtle hints that they're going to work it out. Like that, that couple is. I don't know about the Sorority Weaver and her husband thing. I think there's hints that it's like they're going to end up like figure figuring maybe. out a way to make it work. But maybe that's also a kind of. And I think of I Joan think Hale. his crying is the sign that that's going to happen. I mean, so and I brought this up because you were mocking like the um. Oh, it's so sad. Look how cold everything is. Everything's frozen because people are so sad. And whatever, I mean, you know, look, it's 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 not subtle imagery. And like I said, <laughs> at the, you know, at the outset of the podcast, like I think that's just an easy way for people to evoke sadness is by sure. showing sadness and desolation and right, hopelessness yeah. uh-huh. is by using the snow. And it's like the sudden onset of it of like this freak yeah. thing right. where everything's frozen. All the molecules have stopped. In the sure. words of Elijah yeah. Wood, right. There's a scene in the movie where pre-Thanksgiving they're taking the turkey out of the refrigerator and neither of them can handle this frozen turkey and they're right. fumbling it right. and they drop it. Right. I think that's the best symbolism to both of those people in this movie. Number one, because they're both turkeys. And number two, because like they have no idea how to handle anything. Like It's just, I don't know if that's on purpose, but they're not, they're not very good the only real good person is Sigourney Weaver's husband. And, I don't and you don't even really good. get to find out about he's him very much. He's just not he's, demonstrably he's, bad. No, it's not this, It's not even that. It's that he's a non-character. Right. Sigourney Weaver. Except Weaver's, for the fact that... Okay, go ahead. That Sorry. he loves his son. That that's pretty much right, it. Like, sure. he just... He loves yeah. his family. Yeah. I mean, because that's the thing is he's like, hey, guys, I'm back. And they're like, well, you were gone? And he's like, well, yeah, I've been in Houston for, like, weeks. Right. And they're like, oh... What yeah. were you doing there? And but I was, uh, you know, and Sigourney Weaver has some of the best, like little, like vicious bon mots in this movie. Yeah, she has the best line in the movie. There's a scene where her and um, Klein are in bed together, like post coitus, and Klein's trying to talk about like some work rivals golf game and how, right. and she says, "I have, I already have a husband. I'm not particularly interested in gaining another." Or yeah. Yeah, and he's so, like, right, right. That's just what this thing is. It's just, just fun. Like, it's just, right, which is... Ha- but, you know, I don't know. But he's already trying to, like, you know... Right. Well, it's because he's so fucking unself-aware that he's, like... Right. He, and he I, it can't just be sex. He's also trying to make an emotional relationship out of it. Like, right, because when she, like, obviously abandons him in their sexual yeah, relations later, right. he hangs out in the house and is, like, playing yeah. with... Like, just going through. And yeah. it's almost like... It's funny because I was watching that scene. I watched this movie yesterday, I guess. Um, I was watching that scene and I was thinking, like, I wonder if Ang Lee is in some ways parodying Risky Business with the way he's having him, like, run around in his boxers. And instead of being, like, this, you know, like, emblematic of this guy being, like, carefree and fun and young and spontaneous, it's just this sad kind of like middle-aged man in his fucking boxers like invading someone else's privacy 
and invading the privacy of his daughter, like, subsequently, because he mm-hmm. catches her, like, about to, whatever, like, have some kind of sexual relations with Tobey Maguire. Right. So, anyway, I think it's a condemnation of him, the entire movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that oh, it's... Oh, I, I, I mean, look, it's it, it puts him in a bad light, don't get me wrong. I don't think that all, at, the, at the end is necessarily a condemnation of him whatsoever. In fact, I think... I think you're supposed to feel like some sort of certain way, like it's turn, it's a, it's it's a turning point for him, right? But I don't know about that. No, I mean, I I'm okay, maybe, but I don't think it gives you enough after that to like. It's just, you know, what's he crying about? Like, what's he really sad about? Like, what is the thing? You know what? Maybe it's that his affair is over. Maybe, maybe it's that Sigourney Weaver went off and had sex with like the young. The young stud, and he had to spend the night in the well, bathroom. Well, no, he got drunk over that and, like, made and hid in fell the bathroom. Down, right, and hid in the bathroom. For a whole night. Right. Because he's a, f- like, a terrible <laughs> human being. Right. See, like, you're, you're, I think you're just misunderstanding what. You're right. You said it last night, and I said, you're right. I have a prejudice, a bias against these movies. I, this, this is, this is a better. A better example of them. I think Granted, this is the best example of them. I don't know. May I'd have to go through all of them, but it's like you know, I. You want to watch Squid and the Whale and the Door on the Floor? The Door on the Floor. Um, fucking Door on the Floor always makes me laugh because I always just think of the Cat in the Hat. Like, right. uh, um, <laughs> these I. The butterfly, the, the butterfly in the diving bell, right? That's oh, another one. oh, that that like just gave me more heartburn. Um, oh man, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, all these right. Movies now I'm trying to like repress these actively. <laughs> right. I these fucking movies, these John Irving esque movies, where it's like sad, like smart, successful white people and their damn affairs and their like broken homes and their like you know like really smart like witty kids like that have like their like really active imaginations and like you know i the secret life of choir boys right (laughs) is that why i don't know what that is something like that yeah i i hate these fucking movies it's the reason why i stopped watching movies i hate them that much I think it's like you said. It's overdone. It's an overdone idea. And like, like I said, this might be one of the be- might be the best one. I think it's the best one. Okay, like I'll I'll just give it to you. You you have to understand. It's like it's not. It's just not your thing, right? But it doesn't and make I, it a and bad. It, movie. And I think it is extremely. I don't want to make that claim. I, I think it's like I think the idea that they just persist is just awful and like that they people are still making these fucking movies i mean listen like it's it's changing some because like we're starting to get different representation and voice right like you know in 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 film and television now and so it's changing some wonder boys there's another one wonder boys you're you're right is another one but it's like there's some Mm. of these movies and you like try to say like well what about this and what about that like you know it's like there are like white people movies is like that's a broad category what i when i say white people movies and i bitch about them it's this right it's it's this shit it's the middle-aged white person movie and look at how like you know like broken and sad my life is even though you have and and, and and it's not just my life it's all of our lives it's all of our lives are so broken and sad i 
I can't stand it. It makes me sick to my fucking stomach. And like, (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I just, I just, I just can't do it. There are some good things about this movie. I think there's some good performances. I think the exterior direction is really good. I think the set design's really good. Um, my, minus the GI Joe, like yeah, it's toy, really annoying. Like, I think Richie's really good. Yes. Um, I, I, I it was it was a re- it was a revelatory performance by Christina Ricci at the time. Like it was amazing sure. to see her because she was Wednesday, she was Wednesday Adam. Sure, sure. Before this, or like right. Gold Diggers, yeah, nineteen whatever. Right. Um, <clears throat> best thing, not the best thing, funniest thing about this movie. And this is going to sound awful. I actually legitimately laughed at this one that happened in the movie because um, I haven't seen this in a long time. Is <laughs> This is this guy sound awful. So, uh, who is it? It's a uh, Elijah Wood. Like right before he dies, like he, when he's like leaned up against like the guardrail, and he like looks and sees like the 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 wire, right? And like realizes in his mind that like what's getting ready to happen, and he's like, "Oh shit!" Right? <laughs> oh no! I laughed my ass. It's, off. it's pretty funny. I I think that's I think you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> In that one moment, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you're supposed to or not. Or not? Made me laugh. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. But uh, it made me laugh, and um, it was probably for me the best part of the entire. To movie. me, the funniest moment in this movie is when Toby Maguire is has drugged his friend and his romantic crush with like sleeping pills, basically, because he's trying to ha- have his friend slash like romantic rival not fuck the girl that he's interested in because that's yeah. what always happens and he's kind of like trying to date rape the girl he's interested in because he has no other way of knowing how to like right engage with a woman and she's like dr- like druggedly telling him like i see you as a brother and he's like yeah i get that a lot and then she just passes out on his crotch yeah. and the fucking like creepy pervert just lets her sit there with her head in his crotch yeah because it's the best thing that he can expect look this is the fact that this movie like is like taking it's taking these ideas and themes seriously this is that's what i hate about these movies do you think what so yeah most of it's taking it seriously yeah maybe it's a black comedy though no maybe you should put like a funny soundtrack look behind if, it if, if it had the, the sense of humor of something like freaks and geeks telling this story it would probably be a good movie. Well, I mean, the it fact is, that it takes it seriously. It's the precursor to Freaks and Geeks. Uh, to some degree. In some ways. But, and the, and, and the, actually, that got you. That's what got you upset last night is when I said, like, that the interior shots, I see no difference between that and, and an episode of Freaks and Geeks and how the interior is filmed there. And that's when you really got, like, kind of, like, annoyed with me. Um, but you're, 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 you're trying television to. Television show direction, I said. Trying um, to provoke a reaction. <laughs> Well, I'm but, not even a huge fan of Ang Lee. Like, but this yeah. is Ang Lee's best movie. Yeah, but I, look, I, the fact that it, if if it was tongue in cheek at all, it might be a better movie. But this is the problem with these these fucking movies, right? Is that they take it seriously. So That's listen, we're never going to agree about this movie, right. and this is the last time we probably ever have to talk about it. Except like maybe we'll do like a some like 200 episode retrospective, uh-huh. and we can talk about this movie again. I, I I I'm never watching this movie. Ever if again. you know you, why would you have to now? You you, you saw it. You saw it all. You, you, uh, <laughs> you can still I've talk about everything. it. I 
Look, you know, here I'm going to predict the day that this movie comes back up again. Okay. It's the day that we talk about Marriage Story. The day that we talk about Marriage Story. This yeah, is right. Because th- you this, like right, Marriage this movie, Story. Uh, you can you can already foresee it. That's which what I'm is saying. worse, so much worse than this movie. Right. Even though you liked it, and, and then you thought about it some more. No, no, and I then still you, like it. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. I have a lot of problems with it. I have a lot more right. problems with Marriage Story than I have with this movie. And again, it's kind of like the G.I. Joe truck thing <laughs> is my problem with Marriage Story. But. Okay. But anyway, that's the day this is going to come back up because I'm going to end up saying something that you're going to use this movie against me. Right. Oh, I will. Right. So... Oh no! I I hope it takes longer than that. I hope it's like two years from now. I get to be like, do you remember how much you hated Ice Storm? And you'll like, it'll be like stabbing you. Yeah. Right. Here's there, the end. Here's the Gen thing. X white people movies that I like. I like Garden State. We talked about Garden State last. Garden year. State's about young people, though. This is about old people, exactly. And that's what I'm saying is like I think that they're and and always with the old people comes the ennui. Right. It's old. So, it's right. middle age on. I don't want to talk about this movie anymore. Let me. So I, I just want to say this. Chris's, I don't know, like vilification of this movie is just like another middle class white person movie. It's true. Like that's what this movie is. It's about the disillusion of a middle class family in a time that was very whitewashed, especially in terms of the way things are portrayed in film and the way that, like, you know. This was like this movie takes place, even though it was filmed in ninety seven or whatever, takes place before the era of like really having a lot of like people of color on represented in entertainment, you know, as like leading leading roles in films and directors and So if you have a problem with any of that stuff, probably not gonna like this movie. But if you're fine with that stuff, it's a good if movie. If you can get past that stuff, it is worth watching. A very good example of just a small study of the mundane aspects of life all centered around a tragedy basically right because that's the thing is it's like the the death of this kid is overshadowed by like all these like small things that these people care about in their own lives like again like that's why it's a condemnation to kevin klein because like he's sad because he cheated on his wife not because this kid is dead didn't they just one up like losing an eye? Isn't that right? It's, I wish you wouldn't bring John. I, I know that John <laughs> like influence a lot of this stuff. I wish you wouldn't bring that shit up because we we don't ever need to talk about world according to Garp <laughs> or fucking fuck. What is um prayer for Owen Meany or Sliderhouse Rules or anything? Right. Yeah. Fucking Hotel New Hampshire, whatever. Is that? Is that? I don't know. I just that's made, not. I, you, I, I, there's some. Don't want to talk. They about. all take place in New Hampshire. <laughs> they so they just made that up. They they all take place in New Hampshire. They all came out in 1998. Right. <laughs> no. Well, it's not called a prayer for Omini. It's called Simon Birch for right. whatever reason. Yeah. Right. God, that oh. Huh. If we ever do a thing on like Frank's most hated most hated movies yeah. that are generally not enjoyed by other people. <laughs> Simon Birch is like maybe number one on that list. I fucking hate that movie so much. Yeah. That okay. and Jack. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jack's Jack's the one that I hear. I, I've heard Simon Birch a lot. Jack's the one I always You hear. know what? It's because people have respect for fucking Francis Ford Coppola and fuck him. Because he yeah. like eh. Anyway, right. I really enjoy the Ice Storm. Okay. I I 
I respect. It's cold. Cold movie. <laughs> it is. There's ice cubes on it. It's a um, cold world. Um, there's a scene where it's like they they're breaking up ice cubes out of ice cube tray, and it's 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 a, it's a, one of the many versions of ice that is in the ice. But room. that's symbolic because it's right before there's a revelation about something that happens. It's the ice breaking. <laughs> I'm serious. That's the truth. Like that's I, why. No, I, that's why there's the close up of. That's like, why it's good. That no, no, no. That's not why it's good. <laughs> I'm just saying. Like that's why they have the close up of the ice like cracking because it's it's Joe Nallen coming out of a frozen stupor basically. Oh, yeah. whatever. If Let's, you can look, if you can, if you look, Frank's exactly right. If you like this kind of stuff, or if like you know, you, it doesn't bother you like it does me. It's a good movie. Um, but I'm I I, I hate everything. Like I hate like eighty percent of this movie. So that's that's all. Also, <laughs> all right. Are you ready to move on? Number yes, two? please. Actually, I'm not even going to front. It's like we're going to go smoke, <laughs> smoke cigarettes. Right, I need a cup of coffee and drink too. coffee, and then we'll be back and start number two. Okay, so we're back. Number two on your list is 1990s Misery, directed by Rob Reiner. Stars Kathy Bates, James Caan, Richard Farnsworth, Francis Sternhagen. Lauren Bacall has a 90% from critics and an 89% from audiences on Rotten Tomatoes. So you want to go ahead and tell people a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? I'm sure that most people like know the plot of Misery. Um, uh, Khan plays Paul Sheldon, who's a famous writer that writes these, I guess, sort of like <clears throat> revisionist Western romance novels starring um, titular character Misery. Um, he gets in a car accident, uh, after finishing a novel where he's trying to like break away from writing this like formulaic, like Western stuff that he's known for. Um, and after in the previous novel that he wrote, the killing the misery character, uh, gets rescued in the snow, um, by Kathy Bates, Annie Wilkes character, um, who takes him back to her house to recuperate, um, what at first seems like she's this benevolent, like kind of guardian angel, um, quickly finds that she's insane, um, and has no intention of ever letting him leave, um, because she has this fantasy that they're going to stay together. Um, she becomes like psychotically unhinged when she finds out that he killed the misery character and basically makes him write a new novel, um, resurrecting her, um, while he's trying to figure out a way because he's he's hobbled like his legs are broken initially and then like legitimately hobbled because she breaks both his ankles with a sledgehammer um trying to figure out a way that he can get away from her um all while people are searching for him to no avail because the snow's like covered up the wreck of his car and um there's no way to find him so in the end <clears throat> he prevails ends up killing her and getting away um and that's it really based of based off of a Stephen King novel of the same name um pretty faithful adaptation too of the novel um I mean like artistically there's not a whole lot to say about it it's a really well-directed film um Reiner does a really great job of like capturing the tone of the book the isolation of this like cabin like you know stranded in the they're in Colorado so it's like the winter in Colorado so like feet of snow like isolating them from the rest of the world and like his own isolation just because she's you know 
holding him hostage, basically. Um, great performances by both Khan and um, Kathy Bates. Um, Kathy Bates, in particular, like one of the more iconic, I think, horror characters of really like ever. I mean, for somebody that's not like a like a Jason, Freddy, Michael Myers sure. style like horror villain, I think like elevated up to that level just by the intensity of her performance and her ability to like flow so easily between almost like benign like friendliness to active hostility and just like reiner does a great job filming her in ways that like make her look almost like calm and plain and normal at times and then just like bug-eyed and crazy and psychotic at others um really tense movie uh we were talking about this um a few minutes ago but just one of those movies that i i haven't seen misery probably in shit like maybe 20 25 years like before this is possible since i've seen this movie and like remembered every single scene almost perfectly which almost never happens yeah. where i'm like and i had the exact same experience where it's like i haven't seen this movie since it came out of the hs yeah and- same here we were talking about it. it's like i felt the same way i knew everything that was going to happen i actually like after i said that i was thinking about it and i think that i bought a vhs copy of this at like the we we've talked about this a little before but like one of the most important places of my teenage years was um this place called the video clearance outlet which was in wilmington delaware where vhs tapes were three dollars each um and you could trade in VHS tapes for a dollar, so you could, like, take old VHSs and get, like, dollar credit for everyone you turned in and, like, buy new ones. Just very quickly, is this the place that uh, Zeke took me one night? Right. And, Close and, to Limestone Road. Right, and just bought pornography? Yeah. <laughs> so, Zeke, I know, I know you're listening, like, not to dive me out. But, um, but they had the most amazing selection of, like, really just that mid-shelf like horror action like the low budget direct-to-video stuff but everything was three dollars and and it was it was pretty amazing to be able to go in and like it was cheaper than renting in a lot of ways except for um we had a place here called choices video that was five movies for five dollars for five days which is how like i've i've seen so many movies over the course of like a couple years when i would go there sure a few times a week but movie vi- king video king did the same thing the five for five for five which is how i saw so many movies yeah. but video clearance outlet like also supported that just by you know i could go there with like 10 bucks and walk out with three like and trade in a few movies and walk out with like three or four movies i'd never seen and just repeat that cycle yeah. for stuff i didn't want to keep um so i think i bought misery like on one of those trips because i think i saw it when i was in my late teens again um but yeah, just a really great movie. Um, the way that Reiner films the snow, particularly um, when Paul Sheldon like initially is like driving through the snow and like crashes and she saves him. And then kind of just the way that he shows like the passing of the season by like the melt, like the gradual mm-hmm. thaw of everything. And it goes from being like frozen and isolated to more open and green of like Colorado. And that's it's. It's just a really it, it makes you feel like the cold and the isolation of the winter. And I think thematically fits in really really well when it comes to 
the idea of the horror of it and like you know the the old idea of spring being hope and like you know and him right getting away and all those kind of things like right and that's what like gets them to find him eventually sure the, yeah right the yeah. thaw and like finding the car yeah. and right you know the yeah. sheriff farnsworth character yeah realizing that like mm-hmm. the car was jimmied open not like open from the inside so somebody had to have taken him and annie wilkes is the closest so that's why he goes to investigate and unfortunately takes like one of the most gruesome shotgun blasts yeah like like from the back through his chest it's um yeah it's a shame that uh i think the only thing i would criticize really about this movie is that i almost wish i could have spent more time with the sheriff and his wife or his deputy um where they have that little bit about like distinguishing whether she's his wife or the deputy at any given moment but um i wish i could have spent more time with those characters i i I really i really like them and uh they're effective in the role in in the scenes they have but it's almost like i wish they were a little bit a a little bit more maybe with some of the detective yeah it's it's a pretty amazing movie in the sense that like it captures a lot of the feel of like the 80s family movies especially in the setting of the small town and the way mm-hmm. that like the characters are really like characters that you can kind of like in a brief period of time you get to kind of know them mm-hmm. um while still being like a pretty pretty horrific movie um in a lot of ways so but yeah it's, it's let me um, ask you this what, what what are the what are your like your top two scenes that in this movie that you think are just really well done the dinner scene i think is really fantastic because like you sense his nervous anticipation and desperation almost to um like poison her with the sleeping pills to like like to escape Mm -hmm. and her fumbling schoolgirl naivete of like she's so nervous at being it like it's it's like her her beau like her dream man is like complimenting her meatloaf and her potatoes and whatever and she spills the drink and you can see like the crush on his face of like this was my chance and like now it's like gone yeah um and then the scene at the end like the last not not the last 15 minutes but like the last 15 minutes when he's in her house um where he's burning the novel Mm-hmm. and hits her with the typewriter and then they fight and he ends up like killing her like that's that's a really intense scene there's small things though that she does like and things that you you carry with you like and it's weird because so i i mentioned this to you i watched misery i guess it's like two weeks ago now i watched this movie um where i pointed out when i saw this movie when i was a kid i thought kathy bates was this old fat frumpy right like marm of a character Mm -hmm. and watching it now like you can see that kathy bates was an attractive woman and like they're making an effort to make her unattractive Mm -hmm. but that she was like like pretty attractive and like you know actually like has like this pretty face and to me kathy bates in my head is like kathy bates now has always been that same character like um her character of joe on the office is basically how i've always pictured kathy bates yeah, like like all of her American Horror Story stuff and yeah. everything. Like, yeah, that's yeah. I, I think we just aged with Kathy Bates, like yeah. where she was just what, like you know, thirty years older than us, probably like roughly like twenty five, thirty years, I guess. Yeah, 
Um, 30 years. Yeah. And it's like, I think that just at the age we were, she was 30 years right, older. She was a mom's age right, at our sure. point. It was like, I was a young right. teenager. But by the kid. time we got to the idea that like, oh, the mom could be attractive. Right. Now she's in her- a grandma. Right. Right. But she's also wearing like the formless, <laughs> like long dress mm-hmm. with the yeah. dark stockings and the clodhopper like shoes and but yeah, i had the exact same experience like like seeing her in this for the first time in so long when she was younger and it's like oh she's she was an attractive woman but it's like you know they do the thing where she turns around and does the pig noise like the oink at mm-hmm. him and scurries yeah. away and yeah. the one um undershot of her face for the first time that she like freaks out about um because she reads like his unpublished novel and it's full of like filth and right cockadoody or whatever she says dirty birdies yeah dirty birds um and like it her eyes bug and it's yeah. just like this complete transformation and it's it's, yeah, it's pretty it's, amazing it is it's interesting to note too because you're right there's not much to really say about this movie because it is pr- pretty much a like a complete like well done film i mean it's not 90 percent. i think is exactly right mm-hmm. um the portrayal by what is her name Recently, and I, I was trying to think of it about three minutes ago in I knew Castle you were Rock. Bring it up, yeah. Um, of Annie Wilkes as like a young woman. It's probably the best channeling of a character without being without being super derivative of another performance. It's like the best channeling an actor can do. And be reverential and still make it their own, their own thing. If that makes any sense, Lizzie Kaplan. Yeah, Lizzie Kaplan. Yeah, Lizzie Kaplan. Which I, I, I had watched that before we rewatched. Misery, yeah, same just, here. But I already knew that it was a really good performance, and like you know, I mean, it was. I thought it was the best thing about that season was was her performance, probably. But um. And I knew it was, like, really close to the Kathy Bates. But, like, watching it now, it's like I could see things in Misery where it's like I'm positive Lizzie Kaplan sat there and studied certain scenes in order to get inflection, in order to get, like, to to, to, to learn how to do the switch almost, like, from, like, right. like with her eyes almost. And, like, it, it's it's a really good performance, like, mimicking what Kathy Bates does with that character. I mean, that Lizzie Kaplan performance is one of the best performances I've seen on a television show in a really long time. Yeah, it's really good, yeah. I mean, it's it's an uneven season of Castle Rock, and mm-hmm. kind of like the first season, too. I, sure. They don't, yeah. <clears throat> they don't know how to finish, honestly, right. is like yeah. the problem with that it's show. True. But there's a couple episodes of that show and her performance that are just, like, superlative. I mean, they're yeah. just amazing. And it is, like, a credit to Kathy Bates that she captured this character so well that the only thing you can do is basically like pay homage to that character you can't like make it a different character really so so rita kempsley from the washington post she says if misery loves company it needs to be inviting but rob reiner's mechanical adaptation of the stephen king thriller never so much as asks us for a cup of poison a weak handshake of a movie it is slightly repellent hardly gripping much less knuckle whitening this psycho for fatsos is a, as self-aware as it is stylist, stylist. 
Kathy Bates plays the plain and piggy Annie, a mentally unbalanced middle-aged nurse who is obsessed with Misery Chastain, the hero heroine of a series of popular romance novels by Paul Sheldon. We're supposed to indulge our fat phobia and loathe the poor thing, but Bates is such an exceptional actress that we not only sympathize with her mad Annie, but also understand her better than we do Khan's dried-up hero. As with other held-against-your-will movies, the premise is thin and wearisome. And then she goes on, and this is what I find the most interesting thing besides the uh, the, the, the obvious like uh, projecting of fat phobia, I think. Um, <clears throat> she claims that the, wife and, the sheriff and wife has more rapport than the stars themselves. And I do want to ask you about that. Do you think, what do you think of like the actual rapport between Khan and Bates in this movie? Like, I think it's. I think it's really uncomfortable, on purpose, mm -hmm. but I think it's very. I think at times it's very natural. I mean, like there's points where, there's points before, Paul Sheldon realizes like the true depth of, you know, Annie Wilkes's insanity, where he is trying to still just like have this decent relationship with this person that saved his life you know like when he says i only let three people read my novels before they're published and that's you know my editor my whatever mm -hmm. and the person that dragged me out of a you know wrecked car and saved my life and it's like that's genuine and mm -hmm. it feels genuine and she feels like you know because that's before like you see her go crazy and even later, like, like I said, during the dinner scene, you know, there's a, like an unsettling, like, I don't know if it's a fat phobia. That's a weird. Uh, there's a lot of weird fat references in that review for talking about a fat phobia. Like, there's never any, I mean, aside from the fact that Kathy Bates is just kind of like stocky, the way that she's filmed in the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it's ever necessarily pointed out that she's overweight she's just menacing like she's this stout woman that like lives on her own in the wilderness and does everything for herself and i don't know i mean I, yeah. that's it's weird it's that's, that's there's a lot of weird references that's but. the critic's own i don't know whatever you want to call it like that's what i said i think she's projecting yeah, yeah that's yeah. that that's that's her own thing mm -hmm. um I mean, I think, I, I don't know, I think that's one of the best parts of the movie is the interaction between the two of them. Like mm -hmm. him trying to maintain a veneer of civility and... Besides the situation, the other thing I'll ask is, besides the situation, obviously you have to sympathize with the guy being held by a psycho. Right. Do you think Paul Sheldon's a likable character? I mean, he's not very... Like, let me say this. Okay, so uh, when I say, like, things are very classically filmed, uh, I use that as shorthand to think of, like, of, like, Hitchcock or something like that, right? Like, a lot of times when I say classically filmed, like, I'm thinking of American classical, like, right. filmmaking. And I think that's what Reiner's doing here. Is it's very classical in the way that it's filmed. Sure. And, you know, if you're kind of thinking about, like, the old, like, you know, the old hero, you know, and that's how she refers to him here as, like he's the hero of the piece the, the protagonist um if it were a hitchcock movie the 
you'd have like Jimmy Stewart or something in it. Right. He's a very charming and likable, you know, every man. Right. But he's just Jimmy Stewart. Sure. 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 Um, so in, in that in that vein, I think they do some things that make you qu- question whether Paul Sheldon is a guy who is likable in some ways. Like, I don't know that they give you enough. Yeah. He's just a person trying to survive. I yeah. mean, it's pretty dumb that somebody who spends all of his time writing in Colorado wouldn't think to check the weather before driving across the mountains. Like, right. that's maybe the guy is so wealthy that he lacks, like, that level of common sense anymore. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not, maybe you shouldn't be driving like a classic Mustang across the mountains in the winter either. Yeah. I, I think if I just, if I was, re- I was trying to think of like, what could I question about this movie? So let me ask you this question. And I don't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Put Tom Hanks in that role. Right. Same, change nothing yeah. except make it Tom Hanks. Are you asking this question? Isn't it just that it's James Caan and like. And James Caan is. Maybe. Kind of like, has that rough, like classic, almost like um james coburn look to him you know and has a way of speaking that's very like i mean here's a guy that like is a veteran of like mob movies you know what i mean sure like so sonny corleone i mean like you know and that's how i always think of him to some degree so this that's what i mean like put tom hanks there put steve martin well tom hanks the best comp for jimmy stewart right like i mean uh, so a guy that like is always likable and is always the good guy in a movie and I don't think you're I, asking. That I'm, I'm not asking the question. So that's what I'm saying. Does if I had to like nitpick, does Khan do a good enough job beyond just the natural sympathy you have for the character of Sheldon in the situation? Is he a likable? Is he a likable guy? And could he be more likable? And would that impact the movie at all? It's just the kind of a hypothetical. I, like what if? I think it makes less sense if he's not who he is does that make sense like i think his ability to have a survivalist mentality and do the things that he does to like try and like kill another person uh, like on multiple occasions right because he has the knife hidden he's gonna stab her he tries to poison her with the sleeping pills Mm -hmm. he ultimately like bludgeons her to death you know i mean like that's not a nice person thing to do right like maybe not having that kind of like mean edge that came from growing up in hell's kitchen which is i think the point of that like showing that he had this rough childhood where he's got these he could be cold and calculated if he needed to be he's got these things in him that weren't the best you know if it were tom hanks just hypothetically there would be a lot of I don't think he could be someone that grew up in an area or had that trait to him necessarily or would have to learn it more throughout the movie right. to become that way. And there would be a lot of nervous energy surrounding the whole thing. And it's like, so to the point, like when he's nervous, when he's like trying to like uh, take the pills and get them down to powder form and stuff like that, you can see it in his hands, like how quickly he's moving and how nervous he is. Because he's trying but, to, but it's beat not her. the same type of nervous that like somebody like Tom Hanks would be. Right. It's it's nervous energy because he's trying to rush through it before sure. she gets home. Right. But when, he, but he, but it's it, Tom Hanks would be nervous about doing the act itself. He's not nervous about the right. act. And when she knocks the wine glass over, he betrays nothing. 
right. like it's a completely even you you can tell there's like palpable disgust because you as a viewer like you know mm-hmm. what his goal was sure but it doesn't come across it's just like it's fine annie yeah no you know i, think I mean that, like so I, think, I, don't, I think that's a reasonable response yeah i mean i I, I was just trying to think of anything like that I could think about that I questioned about this movie watching it, and it probably came down to James Caan, but I, I think he works well. And you know what? It's been a, an incredibly long time since I've read Misery, mm-hmm. like probably, yeah. without exaggeration, probably 30 years since I've read Misery, so I remember... I, the movie is my recollection of yeah i read story. misery after i saw the movie so i think it was simultaneous for me or like yeah. i was read the mm-hmm. book a little before we watched the movie because mm-hmm. that used to be one of my parents um like caveats to watch stuff that was like more adult as i had to read the book first sure um so i don't remember like maybe paul yeah. sheldon's character is portrayed differently because king always is like finding some right. weird like kink or yeah whatever in someone's psyche yeah but anyway, yeah, I thought this movie held up really well, like, considering it's uh, 30 years yeah, old now. it's really good and definitely you know? worth watching. Yeah, absolutely. Free somewhere, right? Uh, I had to... I think I had to run it. I think it's free on one of the... Oh, um, uh, it's free on, like, Showtime or Cinemax something or some like that, shit yeah. Yeah, that you have uh, access yeah. to. Yeah, right. Yeah. Affliction uh, was, too, just so you know. Right, Affliction was, too. Right, I had free to, like, Cinemax. rent all these fucking movies. Um, Simple Plan's up on uh, Prime Tubi. for free. And Tubi, yes. It's almost, yeah. That's why I watched it was on Tubi. Yeah. So, <laughs> watching The Simple Plan, there's the the pivotal scene where um, uh, Jacob is asking Hank to shoot him in the head. Mm-hmm. And he's hey, like... Did he go to the commercial? He said, either I'm going to kill myself or you're going to do it. But either way, like, I need to die here. And it popped up with, like, a Hyundai commercial or something like that. It was <laughs> most ridiculous. Because I was actually, like, like, fully invested at that point. Like, right. oh my god, like... I'd forgotten how great the scene was. And then some, like, 20-something, like, attractive lady, like, dancing on top of a Hyundai is awful. That's funny. Okay. <laughs> so, number one on your list is 1996's Fargo, directed by Joel Cohen. Of course, written by Joel and Ethan Cohen, the Cohen brothers. Stars Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, Steve Buscemi, Peter Stormar, and uh, Harvey Presnell. Has a 93% from critics and 93% from audiences. You want to tell us a little bit about the movie and what you like about it so much? Fargo basically follows the attempts of William H. Macy's character um, to extort money from his father-in-law through the feigned kidnapping of his wife um, so he can pay off. They never really tell you like exactly why he's in so much debt, but he's basically fraudulently written loans out against cars on his father-in-law's um auto whatever automotive sale company Mm -hmm. car dealership that was the most ridiculous like way to get the uh, (laughs) um that the bank's trying to collect upon and so you don't know why like he's embezzled this much money but he's embezzled a very large amount of money and needs to cover it like five hundred thousand dollars or something like that three hundred and fifty thousand dollars yeah yeah and then is trying to trying to further embezzle a million dollars from his father-in-law while only paying these two like low life I don't know like drifter criminals in Buscemi and Stormare um what is it $80,000 is what he says the I, yeah, I, think I believe that was 80,000 I think so 
that's the crux of the movie is basically him like trying to this like ineffectual pseudo middle management like schlub trying to work these machinations you know while putting his family in jeopardy to do it to try and like get this money back so he can basically like not go to jail and then like all the things that happen around it so um mcdormand plays uh sheriff of the town where um marge gunderson yeah marge gunderson where the um I guess it's where it's the murder of the deputy who initially, like, after they kidnap um, Macy's wife, the deputy pulls him over and they murder him, and that's yeah, why Stuart, she gets involved. Yeah, Stuart Mayor right. Yes, that's how she gets involved, yeah. Um, so then she starts to connect things, and they, like, investigate and find out, kind of trailing these two criminals because they leave, like, this really... Buscemi especially, because he's this... What did I text you? Like, Buscemi's, like, the best... Oh, what this you... time period Buscemi is like the best mealy like why me kind of like oh you know I'm sorry like ah, it's not my fault you know like mm-hmm. I just it, he's at his best here and yeah kind of that like I don't know low life cretinous I don't know just career criminal that's like never able to succeed in anything and he, he does a great job of it yeah he does um some funny moments in this movie um some stuff that and like you and i kind of like i it, it's more of a quibble this is a lot different than the ice storm but like some stuff that's played for comedy that maybe should have been played straight in a lot of ways um the only thing that's really ever played straight throughout the entire movie like down the line is the macy character um who's doing all these things and having these chain of events happen around him and even some of his stuff has like comedy happen like adjacent to it but it's not him because he's panicking you know he's nervous and just browbeaten by his father-in-law who's like a much more powerful and manly man than he is um but fantastic performances um really great direction like the cohen's probably like the top of their game still at this point um after miller's crossing and uh blood simple and um right before like you know two other other classics and um oh brother and uh big lebowski um just really good direction you know it takes place in fargo north dakota um and into um the twin cities of minneapolis mm-hmm. which they talk about all the time the twin cities right um you know in the cold in the winter um so it feels like very isolated. It feels like there's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is we when we have already like already mentioned it the the scene where um, Stormare murders the deputy, um, and then takes the car and tracks down a family that saw him um, like murder like saw Buscemi trying to drag the deputy's body off the road and murders that family as well. And it's just and that's and that's. When I, when I, I'm going to get to a point here soon, um, when I read uh, our good friend Dave Kerr's review, but um, it feels like a like two movies to me. There's that movie where it's like things are serious, and like that scene is so well done, right? And Brilliant so scene. creepy, and just 
disgusting. Right. And the the snow falling in the beams of the headlights. Yes. And just the emptiness of the highway and like you feel like you're actually there, and it's so, the ruthlessness of Stormare. Yes. Like waking out of like the slumber kind it's, of to become. It's a this really killer. hard scene to watch. Like, uh, and and I don't react to violence at all, but like that was a tough one to watch just because it felt so real. Like that whole scene, but right. um, but th- th- that's w- that's what's part of this movie, and then there's other parts of this movie that are um, not that. So in in a way, it's like you take you take like Blood Simple, and you take Raising Arizona, and this is like the marriage of those yeah. two movies yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, because Raising Arizona at its core is about like a pretty heinous crime, which oh, is absolutely the, the kidnapping of a child. But, sure, <clears throat> but done like. And play, I played for laughs. Full disclosure, I despise Raising Arizona. Like right. one of my least favorite movies, yeah. maybe ever. Um God, I hate that movie. Um but play straight strictly for laughs. Like it's all comedy. Uh-huh. Whereas like in Fargo, like I like the combination of like the bleak complete dark aspect of some of it mixed with these kind of like aw shucks locals who are just normal. I mean, so they're from this area. You said they're from like Minnesota. Minnesota. Mm-hmm. So they know these people. Yeah. And I think this is kind of like a tongue in cheek jab at like some of these people, mm-hmm. which maybe comes off. Like I, it doesn't bother me in this movie. Like I think that the stuff that's played for comedy is effective. And I think it's balanced well enough with the stuff that's played straight. Um, let, let me jump in real quick and go through Dave Kerr's review here. Um, and I might have one thing to add, but uh, this is Dave Kerr writing for the New York Daily News instead of Chicago Reader. He says that the unstoppable Marge, mammoth and full of life, is one of the few positives in Fargo, a black comedy by the Coen brothers. Though based on a true story, the film turns its characters into broad caricatures. Compassion is not the Cohen's strong suit, though they seem to have a sneaking sympathy for Jerry Lungard, the luckless Minneapolis car salesman who is the film's nominal heavy. Fargo uses violent crime as a tool of satire, but it's a blunt one, leaving behind many more victims than Stormare and Buscemi. Everyone comes off badly here, from the kidnapped victim to Jose Feliciano, who makes a campy guest appearance as himself. (laughs) From the camera angles to the set design, everything is calculated to make the viewer feel superior to the cloddish, geeky characters on display. Alas, this is something that the Coens do with consummate skill. Every element is perfect and perfectly devastating, so much so that the film starts to feel like shooting not particularly deserving fish in an unfairly tight barrel. That's that's interesting. I mean, and again, that echoes a lot of like what you say about it. Yeah. And, and uh, to me, it's just like, I'll tell you the one scene that sticks out to me the most of like what I, what I didn't like about this when I, cause this has always been an unpopular opinion of mine is that I don't think Fargo is bad. I just never liked Fargo as much as everyone loved Fargo. Right. Like, and, and, but I watching it now that I'm older and I think I can articulate things more. It comes down to uh, very much what he's talking about at times is that I think that they're, one, making fun of a lot of the characters in this. I don't think they're making fun of Marge, and I don't think they're making fun of Jerry. Um, but the wife getting kidnapped, 
is the thing that sticks out to me the most right, is a prime example right, when slapstick. she yeah when she gets out of the car with the bag over her head and she's like running wildly trying to escape and they're like if like like obviously they've already proven these two characters are threats but like aren't shouldn't i be feeling horror for that character at, to some degree, like, and, and if Jerry is kind of the villain, as hapless uh, as he may be, if he's kind of the villain, I should be feeling horror for what could happen to this woman. But instead, they're making me laugh at her because she's running around like a chicken with her head cut off through the snow. And I'm now laughing and therefore sympathizing with the killers themselves because they're laughing. Uh, he's Bashemi's laughing at her, too. And I'm laughing just as much because it's fucking stupid. And she looks like a fool. And it's like, that That to me is like the best of many like small examples throughout the film of things that I think undercut the tension. As, as great as some of these scenes are in terms of filled with tension, that's why I say it's two movies. There's that tension-filled scene of the killing of the deputy and then the family. And then there's that. And I think that right. undercuts the brilliant tension that shows up at other times. So... I don't like comedy very much, right. like comedy movies. Yeah. And one of the reasons I don't like comedy movies is because I feel like there's no substance beneath them. But when there is, like, I really can enjoy comedy movies. Like, when mm -hmm. I can see something other than just attempts to make someone laugh at a situation. Like, I, I can really enjoy comedy. And I think that's why I like Fargo a lot. It's like one of my favorite scenes in, this is completely unrelated film, but, but Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Right. One of my favorite scenes Just in that movie... Just thought of it two minutes ago as a good example of how you do comedy and crime right. Is when um, Robert Downey Jr. is pissing in the toilet and notices the corpse next to the toilet and turns and pees all over it and then tries to, like, re-angle himself. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's this yep. mm -hmm. ridiculous scene that, like, the discovery of a corpse in a bathroom should be really tense. Right. But plays out as really funny just both in his reaction and his conversation with um um the fuck why can't i remember that actors the val kilmer character on the phone mm -hmm. and, like you pissed on it like why did you piss on right, it yeah, yeah. like uh, like all no, that stuff is really hilarious well yeah, yeah and i kind of think that that's just and maybe it's not perfect the way they do it but that's what the cohen's are trying to do is they're trying yeah. to like have these elements where you should not be laughing at the thing you're laughing at, but they do it so well that you laugh at it anyway. And I think that's what like black comedy is. Like it's where you're not supposed, you're not supposed to laugh at um, Marvin getting shot in the back of, you know, when Jules and Vincent are driving him in Pulp Fiction. Sure. But it's funny because of their reaction to this horrific thing happening. Like that scene has some really good, Maybe not like overt comedy, like her running into the tree, which is like played like a fucking, I don't know, like Benny Hill yeah. skit, kind of. But it still is like dark comedy, that part of Pulp Fiction. Like, you know. I I, I think what it is probably, now that I'm thinking about their filmography, and don't get me wrong, they have comedies that are just complete misses. Um, but I think I like it better when they just distinguish more between their comedy and their and their and their crime dramas. You know, it's a perfect example of it because Big Lebowski is a crime drama that's a comedy. Yes, but it's more of a comedy. It's a, it's a comedy all the way through. They find 
I think they're still trying to find the right tone. I th- and it's well, you know, your criticism of Fargo is why I hate um, raising Arizona. Honestly, right. it's like the yeah. thing I hate the most about it because they never take anything seriously in that movie. Yeah, and I don't. In- I have a lot of nostalgia for raising Arizona because I, I was so young when I saw it. And stuff. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I just have had to see it too many times, and sure. I got so tired of people loving it. And it's just, yeah. I'm sure if I watch Raising Arizona today, I would be fine with it. But I'm yeah. not. I never want to watch that movie again. Right. I don't ever want to like it. <laughs> this is them learning, I think, like that balance between their straight crime dramas, which in something like Blood Simple and especially in No Country for Old Men, sure. which is their masterpiece. Yes. And they're finding a balance there, which they find in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and Big Lebowski and especially yeah. Big Lebowski because that's yeah. the best like analogy to this movie in terms oh, of right because well right and i mean it, yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a satire of a noir because yeah. it's not like it's not like the noir of miller's crossing which is like right. just like drenched in like stylistic reverence to like whatever everything that like they love in gangster movies and crime right. movies and whatever and it's not this like minimalist look at it like which is what fargo is it's just sure. like yeah. And I think that's why Fargo's set, like, in the setting it is, is because it allows it to be, you don't have these, like, expansive vistas, and you don't have, like, these big, like, beautiful, like, sets or whatever. You have, like, a rinky-dink bar where Steve Buscemi, like, gets his manhood challenged and has to, like, ineffectively defend himself. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I love about, so the reason I love this movie so much, and the reason... And full disclosure, if Revenant was on this list, Revenant would be number one. The reason I love Fargo so much is the performances. It's like what those characters get out of it. Like Buscemi trying to bribe that cop that leads to the cop's murder. Like the, "Ah, I just thought we could, I just thought maybe we could settle this here. Like this dude that's so, so much of like a social outcast and completely... I don't know, like, catastrophically, like, unequipped to, like, talk to other people, trying to, like, smooth talk his way out of a situation Mm -hmm. that if he just would have given his license and registration probably could have gotten out of. Mm -hmm. But him trying to bribe the cop is what makes the cop, like, look further into everything, which leads to the cop's death. And it's just, like, that also is a comedy of errors. I mean, like, the setup to that is a joke, which is Steve Buscemi, but it's just horrific in its play Sure. Just like the setup to um, Jerry Gunderson's wife, I can't remember what her name, like Laura or whatever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> getting murdered is, you know, it's slapstick. It's like when she's running out of the shower, like going, woo, yeah, with her arms waving yeah. around and like topples down the stairs. It's like a Tom and Jerry cartoon. Sure. It's filmed like a Tom and Jerry cartoon yeah. where she like goes bump, ba dump, ba dump, and like ends That's up. That's another part I didn't like, yeah. But it's like that leads to like the horror of. One of the most effective shots in the movie, honestly, is when Buscemi comes back in with his face blown open, like bleeding Agreed. from yeah. his cheek, and her lifeless corpse with her sweatpants and her dirty socks, yeah. with the bag over her head, is just laying there, and Stormare is just watching cartoons in his, like, long johns, and you know, like, you don't even get to see it. Like, you see, you see violence committed against her that apparently has no ill effect because she gets back up from it. Like mm-hmm. she falls down the stairs and gets it's like, she's fine. Sure. But you don't get to see the actual horror of him killing this woman. <clears throat> and it's like, that's the horror is like 
the horror of the body there. You know, and I think I I agree, but I think that that horror of the body has been undercut by that point. Is what I'm saying to me. And like, to me, like I think it kind of heightens the horror. Of yeah, it. I don't know. Like, I, I, what, don't, I don't think it finds a good balance. What myself. was this man yeah. capable of? Like, sure. what did he do to yeah. this woman? Right. And then, like, turns around and is just feeding them into the wood chipper out yeah. back, which probably like one of the more iconic scenes from the yeah. movie. And, you know, here's my favorite shot of the movie. Like, I, I, I think that scene in the cabin is a fantastic scene. Mm-hmm. William H. Macy leaving the meeting, Jerry Gunderson leaving this meeting with his father-in-law and his father-in-law's, like, concierge, thinking that he's going to get this, like, million-dollar deal for these, like, whatever, like, parking lots that he's selling them. Mm. And being offered finder's fee, what do they get, like, $30,000 or something, is it? Right. Well, no, that's not going to do. Like, I, yeah, that's, yeah. I, I need to be a partner in this. Like, that's uh-huh. just, it's, it's, my, it's my thing. And then, like, even losing the $30,000 because yeah. he's talked himself out of it. Uh-huh. And walking across, it always it's it's always funny to me because it's like he walks from the building across the parking lot. Why is he parked like eight rows deep in this like snow covered parking lot, and then like trying to scrape the ice off and just like beating like it's just all of it shows this that he's just this like nothing guy that like yeah. is this also ran. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's one of my favorite Macy performances ever. Absolutely. Like this this and Little Bill in um Boogie Nights like mm-hmm. are like cuz they're really in a lot of ways the same character. Like in terms of like how the world views them. Agreed. And the way they view the world. I mean, I think there's also a similarity with Donnie um right, the Wizard Donnie Smith like Right, that's another yeah, good from Magnolia. Um just like they just want better for themselves but have no idea how to like achieve it and <laughs> they have a lot of love to give they right somewhere to, to put it yeah um and you know what like his little weasel character like can never even own up to what he does because at the end oh, trying to jump that's out horrifying right that it's one of the one of the most difficult scenes to watch in the it's whole uncomfortable movie. like him squealing yes. like a pig yeah and crying as these yeah. agents are dragging, like in yeah. his underpants, dragging him back yes. in. Oh, just hold, hold on a second. Hold, yeah. Like all of it is just uh-huh. so uncomfortable. It is. Watching him get arrested is one of the more uncomfortable things. And I movie. think, I, I think the banality of something like, you know, Marge Gun- Marge, whatever's husband, like got on the three cent stamp with his like duck yeah. picture or whatever. And they're just watching TV at night. Like, mm-hmm. there's just this really boring, banal world that these people live in that's punctuated by these few moments of, like, abject violence. But ultimately, like, that's what they care about is, like, I'm just going to, like... Yeah, and even that aspect, it's like, like you said, it's their masterpiece. But it's, like, even that aspect of, like, the random violence that is inserted into a daily mundane life is done better in no country. Oh, well, and again, like, it's it's... It's impossible, I think, to compare anything else they've done to No Country because No Country is just like tonally and visually and performance-wise just last, head and last thing I'll ask you: How do you feel about Kerr's claim, which I also made before I read this, like to you over text? I think is um, that there's some sort. It seems to me that there's like a sympathy with um, with um, the Lungard character, with William H Macy's character. I think you're supposed. I, I think it's more empathy than sympathy. 
I think you're supposed to feel like, I, and I think that's why they don't give you all the details of why he's in debt because you're just supposed to get that. And Macy portrays it perfectly. You're just supposed to get that feeling of like, everyone's been in a situation where it's like, man, like, I don't know how to get out of this or I not even, I don't know how to get out of it. I can't see a time when this is going to be better, but it compounds like every single minute of that film that Macy's in it. So sympathy, no, because he's a pretty terrible person and everything he does is wrongheaded Mm -hmm. and ultimately selfish and risks like everything that he cares about. Because you look at him like, no matter what he did, lives in a nice house, mm-hmm. has a decent job. Sure. You know, his son's kind of an asshole, but his wife seems like pretty nice. Like, mm-hmm. he's fine. And like, he did something to get himself into Hawk. And the fact that he even knows like to talk to, um, I can't remember the name of the Native American yeah, right. um, yeah. guy, mm-hmm. Joe or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he even knows to go to somebody like that to hire criminals, like sure, sort of implies that he was doing some other like really bad mm-hmm. things. Right. So sympathy, no, but I think you can kind of empathize with it, and that's what makes it. So, more... do you think it's a tribute to how good William H Macy is? Then, yeah, that he makes you, that he takes what you're talking about, like that little kernel of like understanding of empathy that somebody could have of being put in a situation where they don't know how to get out of it. Do you think he just acts it that well that it almost feels like sympathy? Yeah, because that's the horror of him getting locked up and being hard to watch. Right. Is that you, there's some part of you that feels for him. Right. Well, it's not that it's just, you don't feel bad for him, but you feel for the idea that this man Uh, you know what it's so william h macy philip seymour hoffman john c Riley, like from this time period from the early 90s through the mid 2000s are i think far and away like the three best character actors and one of the things that all three of those guys have and macy maybe just because he's like the kind of weirdest looking of all of them Mm -hmm. is the ability to show you a facade cracking without using any words just by the twitch of an eye or the falling of a cheek or like the kind of like slow like droop of a smile and like you see that in macy that it's like so humanizing i i I don't know that there's any other actor that could portray jerry lungard without being a caricature and I think maybe right. that's your maybe that's the problem, like to Kerr's point of like the shooting fish in a barrel, is that people are portraying these other characters as caricatures. Whereas Macy has the accent, Macy has the you know, the homilies or whatever you call them, mm-hmm. the all shucks sure. um Minnesotan like dialect or whatever. But he humanizes like everything about himself. So when you're watching him like you can see like he like has panic in his eyes and it's like mm-hmm. it's like expressed in this way so maybe that's the mm-hmm. thing is like i don't want to talk about magnolia really at all but it's, uh, but there's a scene in magnolia when we were talking about it a few weeks ago when uh, the brad the bartender when he um he's sitting at the table by himself as donnie right and he sees he's watching brad and brad gets called over by the old man uh-huh. um 
and he d- he just orders like a soda or something from the waitress and he sees that and it's just like focuses on his face and you're right it's like there's something about his eyes and just about like some some way his cheeks like right. just drop and he's like actually actually could could you order me any orders a drink yeah what? And it's like and you, you just see like right. this way this finger moves like like twitches when he like calls her back over with the eyes and the face drop and it's like you know like this guy has made the decision after seeing like the the, the guy he's infatuated with like you know um get called away from him kind of so he couldn't see him that it's like this guy's made this sudden decision i'm gonna get trashed right like <clears throat> and like with you and it's all unspoken right. Yeah, it's it's a very a very rare talent for somebody to be able to show like that much emotion just yeah. by expression. But Macy's really like fantastic at it. Yeah. That my 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 favorite example of it in Fargo is um <clears throat> when when Marge Gunderson comes back the second time to the dealership and is sitting there and is trying to ask him <clears throat> questions and he goes from hostile to meek to pandering, to exasperated, <laughs> to fearful, right? Like in the span of seriously, like two minutes, maybe, maybe yeah. not even that much, right? And finally, it's just like the like one of the few times he he curses in like the film. Yes. Yep. What is it you want your Christen like lot inventory? I'll go do your yeah jesus christ uh-huh. and he almost even like drops the accent at that point too and just storms uh-huh. out and to your point like that's it, it's an amazing scene and it's an incredibly like powerful scene by him and then the comedy of like her like well the little man's just escaping as he like drives off <laughs> right. the lot <clears throat> but he's, he's but the, yeah that's more natural comedy to me though there, there's so many like things that are like slapstick forced and, comedy right yeah and you know what there's a couple scenes in this movie that maybe don't like the the Asian guy that like was her high school weird, friend, weird, weird like plot. it's right, and it doesn't really like do anything except yeah. to show her faithfulness to her husband or whatever. Yeah. Maybe right, that's what it shows, but it's just kind of weird. Yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, they're, um, they're... and a, a, a way to make fun of like people talking about the Twin Cities and oh yeah, yeah, the Twin Cities, like yeah. oh you gotta right. gotta see Jose Felicia anyway, right? Yeah. And the 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 interview with the prostitutes. Mm-hmm. But then again, like, maybe that's the whole thing is, like, you know, because everybody describes him, he's just weird looking. Just weird looking little guy. Mm-hmm. What did he look like? Well, he's just weird. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's the thing is, like, these lack of, you know, lack of ability to express, like, complex. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't really defend that part of it. I don't really yeah. have any connection right. to it. <clears throat> yeah. Whatever the twins. Yeah. I mean, I liked it more. Um now than i did in 1997 but i still have there that issue still bothers me with it like i i, I think it's like a middle of the middle cohen brothers movie i can't know? believe i'm about to say this but dave kerr's review like kind of crystallizes what you're saying and i can understand that point mm-hmm. but i also don't care i guess yeah like i'm fine with them shooting fish in the barrel because i think the overall I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't care about it if I didn't think. If I. I really wouldn't care about it. Truly, if I. If I didn't think that it wasn't undercutting some level of tension that I had in that movie. Sure, and I understand that. And again, like we're not talking about the best Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. This is just. Like, I can forgive comedy I don't like. 
you know, to some degree. Like this, this would be if if the Revenant was on my list. This is my second favorite movie. Sure, yeah. and I still like. I really enjoyed. I probably like just out and out enjoyed watching this movie. I definitely did more than any of the other four movies on the list. So, like, it went by really fast. Like, Actually, movie, I I think I uh, honestly I would agree with that. Probably th- this movie feels like it's like forty five minutes long. Like, yeah, it's not. Watching. Yeah, right. Like it flies by. Yeah. And by the time you get to the end, you're like, oh, my God, like, this yeah. is over. And what right. is it? It's like close to two hours, right? Nah, I, hour and 45, hour I think. Hour and 45, something like that. I, I think hour and 41, if I remember correctly. But so, it still went by really quick, yeah. And again, I think it's a credit to them yeah. that you watch Big Lebowski. And I watched it in one sitting, which does something. Right. That is that is pretty impressive. You, you watch <laughs> right. Big Lebowski, and I've seen Lebowski now. Well, what I mean by that is I, I did not switch it over to my ipad and then like go smoke right. and then like come back in and get a cup it. of like, coffee i just lay, i just laid on that couch and just like watched right. like yeah straight. i mean i i think it's a credit that you watch like no you watch um oh brother and you watch big lebowski and you see that they like it's funny that after big lebowski they make like a few really bad movies like they make mm-hmm. um Whatever the one with uh, Clooney and um, Intolerable Cruelty, Is that yeah, right? Intolerable Cruelty, and they mm-hmm. make um, Lady Killers, Lady Killers, which are Intolerable Cruelty is just like mediocre. Like it's not yeah. bad, but there's nothing great about it. Lady Killers is a terrible movie. Yeah, yeah it's a bad movie. That they just kind of even like that. Um, we saw that in the theater, right? Lady oh, yeah. Killers. Yeah. That was a after work movie. Mm. Um, that Hail Caesar or whatever. Like we which saw I both thought, of those in the theater. Yeah, we did. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. That Hail Caesar movie or whatever it was called. Um, which I thought was like decent. Yeah, it was I haven't seen that. from like maybe six years ago. Mm. Maybe that's not even what it's called. I can't remember now. Um, which I thought was decent. Still, like they've never captured that that Lebowski level of like perfection in terms of like balancing what should be a pretty complex like crime plot with like a you know just having a comedy. Yeah. But that's I, I, I think to... they had some cheap, uh, not, not, I shouldn't say cheap outs because I, I love Lebowski, but I, where they could, because they were playing it as such a, like, it was so, so many noir tropes, they had an easy out, I think, sometimes to be able to just upend and undercut the trope. Um, example I mean by that is in the dark room with the old with the with the with the with the big Lebowski like sitting there in his wheelchair like staring at the fire talking about like marrying this woman and like losing her and blah blah and it's like it's this in, in the old noir movie that's like this pivotal scene that's really meaningful and like the the noir detective you would cut to him and he'd have some kind of like wry quip uh, you know and right. it, like, it, it just cuts to Lebowski like sitting there after he's like obviously smoked and is like <clears throat> oh that's a bummer man like it's it's obviously upending like the traditions of noir right. and I think that sometimes it's easier for them to do it in Lebowski because all they have to do is think of a funny clever way to upend the the tradition they also have your main character is like funny and charismatic and obviously detached from everything happening around him whereas sure. your main character in fargo is the right. villain yeah inherently yeah. and yeah. like is causing all the bad things to happen whereas lebowski's just kind of like floating along yeah just because he wants him to like pay for his rug <laughs> right so right. okay um so that's our episode for tonight so for the rest of the month of february we uh We'll be back next week with the top five black exploitation movies. Uh, and 
then and uh, the, le- the next episode of the month, uh, either the third or the fourth week, will be um, our first third man in a while. A uh, friend of the podcast, Aiden Boyle, will be coming over to discuss the best Denzel Washington movie. Um, so those will be our two episodes for the rest of the month. Uh, any any final thoughts tonight, Frank? What no, I, I really enjoyed this list. Yeah. Um, as kind of bleak as all these movies are, like it yeah. was still enjoyable to watch that's why i think fargo was fun to watch is because so much of it was bleak and just just depressing yeah a lot of these movies like at least there was a fun element to fargo right there's no release in any of the first four movies (laughs) right yeah yeah misery probably has more of a release than most of the rest yeah just because of like you get to see the villain die whereas like the villain kind of wins like in all the other sure sure so um okay so um as always, you can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Facebook. Uh, apparently, I just found out tonight that we have an old Instagram account that is uh, the number two and five, two guys, five movies that has nothing on it. I must have made that like a year and a half ago uh, and just forgot about it um, and didn't didn't remember that it existed. Um, it makes a lot of sense now why we're uh, uh, spelled out two guys, five movies on the, on the Instagram account that we use. Um, I had no idea. I don't yeah i didn't know it either so uh but yeah you can follow us on on instagram you can follow us on facebook um best thing you can do for us if you want to help us is 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 like and share um it's the best way to kind of get us exposure and um other than that thank you everyone for listening and i hope everybody has a great week yep have a good night